Hey everybody, welcome to We've Got Ward, a doof media podcast series where we expertly dissect and discuss Ward while those return to the world of parahumans. My name is Matt Freeman, and Scott, we don't need to worry anymore. I've bought a thousand lottery tickets, and this stratagem will surely fund the podcast for years to come. But um, where'd you get the money for the tickets, Matt? What? Uh, I'll get back to you. This is the weekly podcast where Matt and I eagerly dive into Wildbo's world of puppy theft, the world's most dangerous lottery ticket, and alien-based death powers as we analyze and interpret this ongoing web serial. This week, Arc 18 Radiation continues with chapters 18.8 and 18.9. We flash back to those days of summer loving, back right after the world had ended, but before it had ended again. And Victoria meets her future employers of the patrol block. Then... Kenzie steals a dog, and the entire Save the World operation halts to deal with that mess. Later, Victoria debates with her team about the nature of sacrifice, and then decides they should probably throw a bunch of humans at the problem. That'll solve it. Matt, what did you think of these two chapters? Um, you know, we're, we're backing off from the action, right? After some of the most titanic action uh, in the story, we're, we're back in the, in the personal stuff, the the psychology, the character stuff, which... Before before we move on, I just have to give you, like, a, a mental round of applause for Titanic action. That was... Oh, thank you. It was well done. It was well, I, well done, I sir. I thought it might have gone without comment, but um, really glad we're drawing attention to that <laughs> to that bold move that I went for. So bold. Um, yeah. Um, so, like, this is probably going to be one of those three-hour ones just because there's a lot of character stuff, you know? So. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I liked it a lot. I mean, there's a lot of stuff. I, I think the interesting thing to me is we're kind of seeing our protagonist's point of view challenged directly by uh, from a lot of different angles. Right. Um, not only from people in the patrol box, not only from Natalie, but also directly from some of her team are challenging the way she views problem solving and the way she thinks the solution to this problem is going to happen. And I mean, at the end of the day, like it, it does have an effect on her. Um, I think it's a very minor one. <laughs> we'll, we'll kind of see how the next chapters roll out after this, but I don't know. I found it really interesting to to just see her challenged um, on yeah. on the way she kind of processes this kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like she's been challenged in some of the ways that we, the readers, have have been kind of you know we get to watch what happens in her head in, in her head, and we say. I don't know about that, Victoria. That's kind of a pattern you got there, and and yeah, we're we're seeing. I mean, I don't I don't think it's substantial. I don't think my theory that um, the team was actually meeting behind her back because they wanted to talk about her is substantiated by the text. No, yeah, yeah. But that that said, it is kind of interesting how everyone kind of uh, is on the same page in their giving Victoria a little bit of pushback. Yeah, I, I think basically everyone on the team, right? Yes. Um, Rain. Well, we'll talk about Rain. He's not giving pushback. He's doing. He's doing some other stuff. Yeah, 
he's just kind of off to the side doing his own thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, uh, quick, I guess it's an announcement. Yeah, okay, so first announcement, um, we're going to have a, a pretty wacky holiday schedule, folks. Um, we have, you know, family things, and I'm sure you guys are going to have less podcast listening time yeah. in, your, in your week because of all of the holiday stuff. So it just makes sense. Um, it's, do, do you, we have it written down somewhere, Scott? <laughs> I don't have it written down, but I did memorize it cause okay. I'm insane. Um, so basically Christmas Eve is our normal recording time. Christmas day is our normal podcast release time. So we're not going to do that. Um, instead we are going to take next week completely off. And then on the first January 1st, 2020, we will have another episode that will have three chapters, the three chapters that have occurred while we've been off. So the one that was released today, the one that will be released on Saturday and the one that will be released on Christmas Eve, uh, will be covered in that episode. And then, uh, the episode that comes out on January 8th, will have three as well. The one released on, um, Thursday or Saturday, the 28th, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Tuesday, the 31st and Saturday, the 4th. Um, so that is our plan for the next few weeks. So we're only technically taking one off. Um, and we didn't want to do all four chapters in one, uh, cause that's, that's a whole, whole lot. Um, so instead we're breaking it three and three and then everything will return to normal after that. So figured who wants to listen to us talk about ward, <laughs> On Christmas Day. Christmas, yeah. Yeah. Um, unless Wild Bo writes a whole bunch of extra chapters over the holiday. You know? Yeah, that would change things substantially. If suddenly <laughs> we start getting bonus chapters on Thursday. Uh, uh, we do. We, I, I don't. I, yeah. Let's. I'm praying. <laughs> yeah, we'll just we'll just see. Not yeah. that I would say no to bonus chapters. Oh, no, certainly um, not. And then um, I wanted to do a better job of telling everyone about the Doof the Right Thing <laughs> fiction contest. Because last week I... As Imp would say, fuck the dog. Um, so basically. Uh, and I would like to do a better job of remembering to put the link to that contest in the show notes like I said I was going to do. So, you know, we both we both messed up. Yeah. Here. So second trizies. Uh, <laughs> so the, the submission must include three words from one of the do the right thing prompts posted in the interval between October 18th and January 17th of the following year. Uh, your submission must be 2000 words or less in link. That is a short piece of writing you can write that in half an hour half an hour of your time send us that email you've entered the contest it's really easy super easy you you, you can edit it you can polish it um contest is due by uh the, the entries are due by january 20th of 2020 plenty of time easy to remember too yeah um all right cool let's move on into these chapters let's do it 18.8 um so as we begin i think up front, we should talk about our reactions to the placement of this flashback, and then we can just kind of talk about the text itself sure. beyond that point without kind of continually referring back to how disoriented we were. Um, so for my part, definitely took me a bit to realize that this was a flashback here at the beginning. Even after that, I, even after kind of realizing it, I was wondering if this wasn't some kind of Master Stranger fuckery since straight-up flashbacks for the protagonist are uncommon to the point of never having happened. Yeah, that's it. I, I, I wasn't comfortable saying that, but now that you've said it, I can just piggyback on it and look less wrong somehow. Okay. Um, <laughs> but I agree. I, I don't r- recall any specific moments, certainly not the start of a chapter. You know, I think there's been moments where like uh, some, a flashback was telegraphed beforehand maybe. Um, but even that, I don't, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I 
so first of all, I was just as dory- disoriented as you were. Um, I think it's designed as such, but it's it's doing it in this really clever way. I really love how the chapter doles out clues to you about where the, when this is and when this is happening. Like the, the chapter opens with Crystal Landing trying to to startle Vicky, which based on where we last left Victoria, that seems like a bad idea. Like if uh-huh. this was in current time, like we do, it's like that's bad. Yeah. Um, we see immediately that she's wearing a sleeveless form fitting outfit and is sweating still. And uh, it's winter in present day. So that's a little bit off. Um, and then we have this line. The world had just ended after all. And that's like the perfect line, because, of course, it's talking about how this is just immediately after gold morning. But it could very well be just how Victoria is talking about everything that's happening now. Right. That right. the world has ended. So it's like one of those things that could kind of be both it could fit in both of those things and, th- and then crystal's talking about fast food restaurants and then we see this woman in a sundress and i think that the the hints keep compounding over the course of the very early parts of this flashback to where i don't even ever think it like comes right out and says it until the flashback is over that this was a flashback but it becomes very obvious um as you go through it and i think the cool thing about it is everyone's going to pick up on it at a different point but it still works no matter what point you figure it out like if you read the first few lines of the chapter and said form-fitting outfit sweating this must be in the past it'd be that'd be great but if it took you till four paragraphs in five paragraphs in ten paragraphs in i think it still would work um, and I, I think it's designed that way. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I think you pointed out at some point that Wabo could have just put, you know, two years ago at, mm-hmm. at, at the top or whatever. Yeah, two years ago at the top of the uh, at the top of the chapter, and then it would have been like, oh, okay, it's flashback. Got it. All, all good. But I think there is absolutely purpose behind dribbling out these details. And I think, in my opinion, and, and I think that that's maybe the the purpose of the entire chapter is that or the entire flashback rather is to kind of let us realize how different this Victoria is than the one that we get used to that, that, that we're used to. Yeah. And, and the way that, that he's done this is simply to let us be in her head for a little bit and, and notice like, it's not how to say it. Like the difference between this Victoria and present day Victoria is more readily apparent to us than the fact that somebody's wearing a sundress and it should be winter. Sure. Right? Yeah. Like, like, like that's, that's how jarring it is to be in her head. And that's telling us what's important about this is, Hey, you probably haven't noticed, especially you guys keeping up with the web serial and you've been reading it for two years or whatever, but Victoria's changed a tremendous amount over the course of this story. Um, and I think that's a lot of what's happening in this, in this chapter. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, she is so, so different. And I mean, there's going to come a time years in the future where people are like binge reading this. Right. And maybe it's only been a week since the Victoria we saw at the beginning of the text versus the Victoria we're seeing now. And and that change just in the style of reading it will be more apparent to them. But for you, are exactly right. For those of us that are following the story as it's being released, which is the way Wildbo is writing it. Right. Like he's mm-hmm. writing it for that audience. He is not writing it for the audience that's going to binge it. Uh, 10 years from now, whatever Um, he's writing it for us basically, because if he didn't want to write it for that audience that way, he would just write it all privately and then release it all at once. Mm -hmm. Um, So having this, this section where it, it, it draws that contrast out is, is so impactful and so powerful. And I think one of the things it does is absolutely show the ways in which she has dramatically changed from the beginning of the book. But 
in doing that, it also manages to show us the ways in which she is still the same as that person at the beginning of the book. Um, the contrast highlights the the um, I can't think of the word the sameness, yeah. right? Lack of contrast. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, Reddit user Alex Gindel in a thread said the first section feels like a Victoria interlude. And I love that. Um, yeah. Just yeah. A, as a way of describing it. Um, it. It almost serves as exactly that. Yeah. 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 I like that a lot. And I mean, I think I think we need to we need to highlight as we go through, as we start talking about the flashback specifically the the ways in which she's changed and the ways in which she's earned that change right like like that has been hard fought change over the course of these two years uh for us and i, I guess we learn later that the whole i can't believe the book has taken place over two months matt the whole book is just two months it's so crazy it's crazy but um the ways in which she's she's Hard, fought hard and earned that change and then of course the ways in which she is still the same she is still struggling with things she still has certain behavior um and and let's let's make sure we bring them out as we go through this flashback sure so as you mentioned a minute ago crystal lands like like violently trying to startle victoria and also startling everybody else in this crowded area <laughs> which is just super tasteful laser dream i'm sure everyone really appreciates this kind of thing especially right after gold morning um, and then Crystal also offers. If, go ahead. I wonder if like Gary was like there. Yeah, he spilled the milkshake, spilled the, yeah. spilled the chocolate milkshake on his on his dress shirt. And that's when he went. Capes. Yeah. yeah, it's all Crystal's fault. That's it. We we discovered it. We we finally we finally <laughs> cracked the the why Crystal is secretly bad. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then of course Crystal offers a hug which is rejected by Victoria. Yeah. And I mean, this is, this is so wonderful, right? Because again, in our way of kind of playing loose with the, with where this is, what time it is, we've been talking about Victoria. Victoria has been handing out hugs like they're candy lately. Like she either hugs people or she wants to hug someone. Um, and we've been talking about that dynamic, how she offers the hugs, but never really wants them in return. And we're seeing that part of Victoria here. And uh, maybe, maybe in this version, this earlier version of her is much more uh, touch averse generally, but we still see in the present day Victoria that she's much more willing to give that. She recognizes the strength of it, but still has trouble accepting it. Yeah. It's interesting because I read her, uh, reticence to receive a hug here as being part of her body dysphoria. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas I read her, um, basically un- inability to receive comfort in the present more as a feeling like she shouldn't need it or doesn't deserve it. But I yeah. don't. I don't necessarily think that it is still body dysphoria. I could be wrong though. I, I'm. I'm not sure of my reading there. I think that's always going to be part of it. I think it is absolutely a lesser part of it. Victoria is much more comfortable with her body in present day than the, the, in this version, certainly, and the version we saw at the very beginning of the story. Um, I think a lot of that has to do with her gaining control of the wretch is seen as like her getting control of her body in a way. Yeah. Um, but mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I know what you mean. I mean, she definitely got some physical comfort with Annalise, if you know what I mean. But um <laughs> No, please describe, describe that in detail. What do you mean? What are you referring to? Um, but but still, like that was a different kind of comfort. I guess I guess all I'm saying is that is why I I feel like this isn't body dysphoria anymore. I don't know. I'm I'm trying to solve it in real time. I don't think I'm going to succeed. But yeah, let's, let's move on. I know what you mean, though. Yeah, yeah for sure. Okay, cool. What one of the things 
I really like about this early crystal dynamic we see here is the awkwardness of it, right? In the present day, crystal is as as Victoria notes to Mike in in a couple chapters ago, the only one that has not let her down, right? The only one that is still in her corner. And yet here, there is this pronounced awkwardness between them. They don't really know what to say to each other. There's a point a little bit, a little bit later in the chapter where Victoria sees this overwhelming pity in Crystal's eyes towards her, and she hates it. She hates that pity, and she hates even more that she knows that she needs it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're, we're getting to see this relationship before it really solidified into something and into the relationship it is at the beginning of the story and has kind of kind of continued through the story to the point where Crystal is the only person that she'd consider family that she still really, really has any kind of warm feelings towards. Yeah, it's a good point because we haven't spent a lot of time with Crystal in the story. And this this actually helps us remember like, oh, yeah, like this is this, it's stuff like this that makes Victoria say Crystal's the only one who's in my corner. You know, she yeah. she clearly has this very special place in her part for in her heart for Crystal. Yeah, totally. I think there's a long period of time where Crystal was sort of her only friend. Um, yeah, I mean, presumably, like she she mentions a little bit later how she's not leaving the house. Like mm-hmm. that th- this is this is this whole meeting is probably an attempt by Crystal to just get her out, mm-hmm. get her around people again and get her doing things. Um, so she's, I think this is a, a real act of kindness on Crystal's part here. Yeah. And it works. Mm-hmm. So people are staring at Crystal, uh, because she showed off her powers and Victoria struggles with the feeling that they're staring at her, despite knowing intellectually that they aren't the mere sight of a dog on the street is enough to get her remembering that her body is made out of dogs. I love uh, I love when she talks about her traitorous brain. Is it? Um, it's it's this really powerful moment. Like mm-hmm. it's like her traitorous brain is is doing that to her. And uh, let's talk about let's talk about that moment with the dogs a bit. So there, she she thinks back to what Amy told her, which is no donating blood. Avoid any sources of healing that aren't her, because the wrong source of healing could awaken latent materials that were used to rebuild this body. Stray dogs, stray cats, rodents. This is something that Amy told her, and I kind of think maybe we knew about this, or is this new information? I feel uh, like I I think we knew about this. I yeah. just I think it hasn't been thought about in in a long time because yeah. she hasn't had these kinds of of ruminations in a long time, right? I just think it's really interesting because we've always kind of you and I, have, I think, have always kind of been like, well, I understand this this feeling of discomfort Victoria gets from being made up of other animals. But like in, in our brains, we were kind of like, well, like if the DNA wasn't modified to be Victoria DNA, it wouldn't work. So there's nothing to worry about there. But this is a reminder that like Amy has put this in her head that no, it does actually mm-hmm. whatever, whatever magic timey wimey shardness right. that's holding her together right now uh, is not exactly the same. And I, I don't know, like I saw a thread in the, the separate, I didn't actually click on it. I just saw the title and immediately knew what they were talking about. I think it was titled is Amy lying. Mm-hmm. And that's an interesting question here. It, it, is this, is this accurate? Is this real? If another healer touches her, will it break down this whole thing? There's a moment a little bit later in these chapters where someone says to Victoria, you know, I think it's tattletale. Yeah. Like, you're really gonna, really gonna need a healer anytime, sometime soon. Um, I mean, we know her, her, feeling towards healers is kind of stems from her feeling towards Amy, but it also is part of this, this message that's been drilled into her by Amy. Yeah. And I just find it interesting 
if uh, if she's being honest here or not. If if this is a way of Amy to just make it so Victoria needs her, um, or or if mm-hmm. this is this is the reality, this is the situation. Yeah, I I guess um, I would be surprised if it ends up like mattering textually. Like I'd be surprised sure, if, sure. if if the fact that you know she's not gonna. I mean, it's possible that it could come into play in a plot sense, but I'd be surprised. And and that and what that the implication of that is that it doesn't doesn't really matter as far as Victoria is concerned whether Amy's lying. I think it might matter to Amy's character, but as far as Victoria is concerned, um, she thinks of her body as weird and not really hers. Yeah, and, and this just enforce reinforces that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 really, like you like you said, we don't really know. Like we we had our own little line of logic where we convinced ourselves that it's actually her body and she's fine. But like we don't know how Amy's power actually works. That, that yeah, you know. So she could be yeah, it, it could be completely not that at all. So this is some magic space alien shit. So we should never right. just be like, oh well, logically via yeah. biology, this must be this way. Right. I well. mean, I, <laughs> I I think my 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 favorite realization <laughs> at, at a certain point, I realized that Amy's power is not a healing power. It's a create weird, crazy monstrosities power mm-hmm. that Amy is using for healing, and the power hates being used that way because it wants to do weird, creative things, and so. Right. Anytime it, anytime it actually does heal someone, you have to be highly suspicious of what it actually did. Yeah. So so I, I'm I'm actually on board with this, uh, you know, not quite trusting the healing that it gave her. Yeah, I mean, it would be interesting to be just like, you're healed in the sense that from a observable standpoint, you, you are back to the physical shape you were before. Yeah. But, hey, I d- it did some crazy shit in there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Good thing you got those extra hearts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> those, those secret hidden hearts. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. That's great. So then we get this paragraph. I, I just I, I love a lot of the writing. I ended up pulling out a lot of quotes this week. Mm-hmm. Um, this paragraph is great at establishing slash reminding us of Victoria's state of mind uh, and establishing tone for this section. The text says, I was outside and active because I knew how easy it would be to do anything else. I stayed standing because I was already standing. I could keep from screaming because I hadn't yet opened my mouth to scream. I went through my day because I hadn't stayed inside with a blanket pulled over my head. I wore nice clothes because they were what I'd worn before, back when I'd either been Glory Girl or I'd been Victoria Dallin. I met with Crystal because I hadn't yet cut myself off from the world. It's just so um, gray and and, and dismal. Yeah, um, I, like I love a, it. A lot of the text in this section is just like this run-through of Vicky's internal monologue's greatest worst hits this this hyper awareness of her body the zoning out the not wanting to fly um at a certain point she thinks that everything feels like the day she triggered yeah it's so good i mean just what you said the writing here i like i i could keep from screaming because i hadn't yet opened my mouth to scream (laughs) that is just like beautiful like the just the, the phrasing of that sentence um, just hits you, right? Yeah. Uh, it's so good. All this is so, so good. And I love, I love kind of how the weather is used here to contrast the way that she's feeling. Like we get the setting here. The setting is it's sunny. It's bright. There's newness everywhere. Um, the, the city is being built. It's, it's new. It's, it's be under construction. It's being built up. And we, uh, we know, again, this is where the flashback nature of the scene works really well. We know that this is all going to be destroyed later. But right now, this is a time of new beginnings, a time of second chances, a time of beautiful weather. But our protagonist can't see any of it. She just is, is completely 
sucked into the horrible, horrible thing that happened to her and it's still ruling her life totally. Um, and I just find that very, very powerful. And, and speaking of contrast, the contrast between the weather and how she's feeling. I think there's a line where she like looks up and says, I could see all the elements in the sky that would add up to what is called good weather. And yeah. It's just like that's so powerful the way it's described that way. I mean, it, that's for me anyway, that that's kind of describes that perfectly describes depression like when mm-hmm. when you you know like objectively like oh it's it's a nice day and i'm out and i'm with yeah. nice people and i feel nothing like yeah like, but you don't yeah you don't feel yeah. it at all yeah yeah that's uh, really powerful writing um for for something which is really kind of just a, a kind of a mundane slice of life type moment right yeah i, I do really love the detail that where we kind of remind ourselves that at this point in her life, Victoria was basically rejecting the capeness almost entirely. Like she's afraid to use her power. She's afraid to fly later when she runs into the the patrol block. She'll say crystal is a cape. Mm -hmm. She will not identify herself as a cape. And we know that has to be true because she eventually gets a job with these guys uh, where they do not know that she is a cape. Um, And then we have that quote that, that in the section you pulled out earlier where she says, um, back when I'd either been glory girl or I'd been Victoria Dallin. Mm -hmm. And it's just like, it's so shocking to be reminded that there was a point in the story where Victoria still considered those, those things, those parts of her life as separate, especially in contrast to what we saw last chapter, where she literally said, I cannot see a possibility that exists in which my, there is a separation between my personal life and my Cape life. They are one, they are the same. There is no sick difference between it. And then here in just this one way, she describes her life as I'd been either glory girl or Victoria Dallin. Um, we see how, how much that has changed. Yeah. It's incredible. Well, also the way she, the way that sentence is constructed makes you feel like both of those things are in the past tense. Like whatever she is now, it is neither glory girl nor Victoria Dallin. It is yeah. some, uh, some new thing that doesn't really identify as being the same person. I mean, yeah, she, she clearly is, but, but it, it's like the clothes don't really feel like hers. Right. she, She's not quite, I mean, she's definitely not used to being, you know, herself again yet. Takes yeah. time to get there. And, and we kind of end up seeing that Antares becomes the person that she dives mm-hmm. into, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that it goes all the way back to her telling Dragon I am Victoria Dallin and being told she's lying. She is not <laughs> yeah. Victoria Dallin. She is Antares. She has kind of become that person. Yeah. And, that, and that person does not have a civilian identity. They, they are just right. Antares. They're the reconstructed entity made out of the shards of Victoria Dallin, which were <laughs> the, the warrior monk, the scholar, the um, glory girl, Victoria glory girl. Dallin. Yeah, yeah. The the different facets the that she reassembled yeah. to make this new this new identity mm-hmm. um, of the of the I'm going to say it the broken mirror that that she used to be. Yep. So I think I think there's no better place to talk about this, but but I I was reflecting this week especially on you know we've talked a lot about okay worm is about trauma ward is about recovery i I think that we're far enough into the story that we can say more specific things than sure recovery i i think that one major major like the tip of the spear of the recovery theme is recovery is fucking hard Mm -hmm. um this this story has been a, a a progression of of two steps forward, one step sideways, one step back. 
and then th- that sort of thing happening over and over to the point where when you're reading it week to week, you don't necessarily perceive the forward progress, like even as the reader. And you can totally see how Victoria as the character doesn't perceive the forward progress. But you you sit where we are and you reflect back on Victoria at the start of this book, Sveta at the start of this book, the Capricorn brothers at the start of this book. I'm not going to name every character. You know, you get where, get where I'm going. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been tremendous progress across all of these characters, and maybe it hasn't felt that way. And I think that's because progress, recovery, really doesn't feel like much as it's happening. Yeah. It's very slow, and there aren't a lot of fantastic wins where you say, like, and then there was the moment of catharsis, the character defeated their demon, and everything was great afterward. That doesn't happen in this book because that doesn't happen in real life. Yeah. And, and I fucking love that. I think that's amazing, actually. I'm so glad you you, you pulled this out because I totally agree with you. And I mean, it, it, we are in this really weird point in the book where we're approaching the conceit, we're approaching the climax, we're approaching what the book's conclusion about all this stuff is going to be. And And yeah, we can start to see we can start to color in the lines a little bit about this stuff. And, and I I totally agree with you. And to me, it's such a daring thing to write a book about because it is so inherently challenging, right? Mm -hmm. There is something inherently unsatisfying about the day to day struggle of getting better. Uh, it, It is not, it does not come in leaps and bounds. It does not feel like it's even working. And, and this book has attempted to capture that in story. And, Mm -hmm. I mean, I think, you know, we've seen complaints like I think you can pop up the subreddit any given day and see complaints about Ward. And 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 I think the complaints, you know, well, well, I I assume that they all come from places of good faith and just legitimate people not enjoying the story. It all wraps up into this idea that this is not going to always feel satisfying in in the maybe the way you want it to, Um, because that's not what recovery is. Exactly. I mean, I think Wild Blue is trying to do this. This is my opinion, of course, but I think he's trying to do this very um, admirable thing of, of telling a story where he can't just rely on the the sort of conceit of, frankly, most books mm-hmm. that you're going to get this great moment of awesome catharsis and it's going to feel great and the character wins and everything is great. Yeah. Like that's that's like how st- – that's like how we're taught to do storytelling, right? It's the stru- it's the basic structure of a story, right? That yeah. is, absolutely. And he and he's denying himself that on purpose. And I mean, I get I get finding that frustrating, but I, I also like if you see it for what it is and 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 I mean, again, this is my interpretation, but see, reading that into this story really elevates this into being something very unique and very special. I agree. I agree. And uh, cool. I I look forward to revisiting this conversation once we are at the end and we kind of see how that, that shook out. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, moving on through this flashback, Victoria eavesdrops on a group of patrol block trainees having lunch. She finds the whole thing a little dark. She thinks, (laughs) Uh, I also enjoy that even severely traumatized nearly to the point of paralysis. Victoria still can't keep herself from nerding it, nerding it up when somebody asks a question about capes out loud that isn't even at all directed at her. Yeah. I mean, we go from a moment where she like, people are looking at crystal and her brain makes her think they're all staring at her and judging her and seeing, uh, seeing her. And yet she just dives into this conversation. And this is, this is one of those moments where the contrast between the, the two types of Victoria really help us see 
this element of her that has remained completely unchanged, right? Mm-hmm. The, the, the scholarly cape nerdiness and using that as a way to distract herself from her insecurities, from the things she's scared about, the things she's terrified about. This is a fundamental core trait of Victoria, and it has remained true from two years ago until right this very minute in the story. Yep. Um, she di- she sees something and she cannot help but dive right into it and uses it as a distraction because we see in the text all these things that she's been feeling, this paralysis, this um, it all kind of melts away just for a moment. And there's a moment in this whole conversation where it kind of comes roaring back like she realizes, oh, my God, these people are looking at me. Um, and she kind of bats it away again by once again diving into the conversation and diving into the Cape Nerd stuff. And I don't know, just like seeing seeing this really crystallized as a core trait of hers really liked really liked it a lot um yeah i I mean i the the moment you're talking about i think where she she starts to freak out a little bit when the woman says master stranger yeah and and she does the most victoria thing ever which is repeating like these obviously carol derived directives to present a brave face stiff upper lip um you know present a good image and and uh, and and that's one of the things that gets her back on track, which is very classic Victoria. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then the woman continues to question her on Master Stranger and Shaker Stranger protocols, and I kind of read that as as a bit of foreshadowing beyond just uh, the character moment. Yeah, I mean, there's absolutely probably well, not absolutely. There's there there's a good chance that there is some specific foreshadowing here where these specific uh, strategies are being identified so they can pay off in some way later. So you have what to do with the shaker stranger in the back of your head as you move into some of the, the mm-hmm. action sequences later, that would be, that'd be a very clever way of doing it. So yeah. I could see that as well. Well, I, I think one thing that I, my mind kind of fastened onto was that I literally didn't realize that it was master dash stranger rather than master slash stranger. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I thought it was like master or stranger, be aware there's something weird going on. No, it's master type stranger. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's also shaker type stranger. So yeah. anyway, yeah, I, I, I was like, ah, I get it. I get it now. Yeah. I mean, and and this whole like, I don't know, this whole part is so powerful to me because it 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 plays into how Victoria is thinking about humanity Mm -hmm. for the rest of these two chapters. Right. The the rest of this chapter and then a lot of next chapter is going to be Victoria kind of processing humans and how humans deal with things and how humans digest different information and modern day Victoria is kind of so far removed from the human element that we don't get to see this perspective very often. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is allowing us to see kind of the way the patrol block is dealing that like, this is post gold morning. This is post the end of the world. And they're having this conversation about what to do in these situations. What should we do? Like they're, they're planning, they're trying, they're trying to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just a perspective we don't get to see very often when we're stuck in Victoria's head because she kind of dismisses it a lot of times. Um, but this, this flashback is allowing us to see that. And it ties in so nicely with her kind of returning focus to these people, uh, in present day. Yeah, that's true. I I mean, that's definitely one of the kind of the backbones of this chapter is, is the idea of the patrol block, um, Mm-hmm. kind of the hinge of the chapter if you will because it's 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 the one element that direct well it's, it's one of the elements that directly ties the flashback to the the, the chapter proper so yeah i mean it offers the, it, they're the reason why this flashback is happening right yeah because she's trying to figure out this mystery of how are these people dealing and she's going back and remembering this moment in her past mm-hmm. yeah good point yeah 
So the patrol leader, Karen Vick, basically offers Victoria a job. And Victoria walks away from the conversation, almost resigned to the idea that it'll be a good fit for her, uh, <laughs> especially considering that she was just telling Crystal that she didn't know what she'd be doing in the short term anyway. Yeah, I mean, and then we know this is one of those things that plays off the future because we know exactly that that she is going to end up taking this job. She's going to work for the patrol block up until the point that we meet up with her. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, what did you think about, there's this moment where like she's talking to Crystal about applying for the college and she says basically that she's applying knowing she's not going to get in like her plan is i'm just going to learn about it this time and then i'm going to try to get in next year that'll be my plan this was just my like my information gathering mission as an excuse to drop off the the application but i'm not actually going to get in and that reflects i mean that's so interesting to me because we also know that her not getting in was this this point of severe disappointment to her, even mm. as she's building this narrative to her cousin about how she knew she was never going to get in anyway. Uh, good question. I hadn't really thought about that because you're right. That is a contradiction. Um, I don't know. I, I, I think maybe um, I, I mean, uh, I'm just kind of making it up as I go along, but I feel like maybe at the point of her at the point in her life that she is now. She there's definitely this part of her as a character, as a human being who is restless, who can't stand to just do nothing. Yeah. And she and she channeled that energy into applying to college because that was a future she could kind of envision working. But at the same time, she was dealing with a ton of paralysis and and, you know, forces pushing her away from doing a lot of different things. And then as she as time passed beyond this point and she became more integrated into the world and her job with the patrol, she began to actually have some positive optimism about that future and think, oh yeah, like if, if I get into if I get into parahuman, if I get into college, I can study parahumans and I can be more useful. And and then she kind of got her imagination going and then it was actually disappointing when it didn't work out for her. Yeah, I think that's that makes sense to me. Okay. Cool. Um so we end we end off this flashback thinking that Victoria gets the patrol people in a way that she hadn't before. And then we cut back to the present with her not getting the patrol people. (laughs) Um, She observes them holding it together as she struggles and she just doesn't get it. The contrast is so good. We're talking so much about contrast and how it draws things out. And this, this Victoria has the Victoria in the past was acting like a human being. She was walking instead of flying. She was not doing Cape stuff. Uh, she was hiding the fact that she was a parahuman and she understood these people. And then we flash forward two years and she's lost all that. She's so far removed from these people that she just can't see. She cannot understand. She cannot get them. Mm-hmm. And it's powerful. It's, it's, it's a really great way to jump from flashback to present. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, it, it, it does. It does seem like the more she's gotten into the caping again, the further she has gotten away from the humans. Yeah, totally. I mean, just just like I mean, just like specifically to specific people, but also just people in general. Like mm-hmm. I just I and I know a lot of this is just plot reasons because the world has been destroyed and she's been active and on mission so much of the time and so little time has actually passed between stuff. But also like in the early book, I felt like she was around people constantly. Like I always go back to what to me is going to end up being one of the most important conversations of this whole book between her and Ashley about like who you are around to the people like mm-hmm. and how you present yourself to the people. Um, 
and and she, like that was part of her concern that was part of what she was doing and and that has just kind of slowly faded away the further into the story we've gotten um to to the point where with the exception of running into people like Eric uh, uh, and other things like she's just not around humans very often and now suddenly we're being thrust back into this this place where she's around them a lot and she just doesn't get them she just doesn't get them anymore right and and the story is bringing that front and center by having her uh in the next chapter kind of grab onto natalie and be like you're gonna help me figure this out yep yep but we'll get there and i uh, yeah yeah oh i have so many things to say about that (laughs) (laughs) okay great so at this point though uh she lands and she spooks kinsey (laughs) so of course i want to read all kinds of parallels into things i want to i want to read the parallel into crystal trying to spook victoria of course victoria's not trying to spook kinsey but she does spook kinsey um which so that would imply paralleling kinsey to a victoria in a very bad state um also this is kinsey who is containing a dog within her person which is similar to victoria yeah, the, the first time I saw this in your notes, I, I wanted to call you out on reaching a little bit <laughs> on this connection. And then it happened again uh-huh. with Damsel. And I was like, oh, yeah, there, like, there are several moments throughout the story where Victoria lands and creep and freaks someone out. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I am totally here with you now. I'm totally here on this parallel that um, we are kind of and, and it fits, right? Because Crystal crystal's the cape person right crystal's mm-hmm. like all in on capedom and now that the victoria has has subsumed that role in in present day and we're seeing how she's affecting other people yeah i mean definitely there's three there's three instances of someone landing and startling someone in, in one chapter yeah um so that feels meaningful also it forces you to consider what it would be like if debris was real and you're just like walking along to get the mail and then you hear like like right next to you and you just like lose your shit and and realize oh it's just your it's just your friend flying up to talk to you Um, also victoria's foot is hurt and i know it doesn't describe it this way i know it doesn't describe it as a superhero landing like with one knee down but because her foot is hurt and it it just says her, her like she only lands on one foot i'm imagining it being the superhero landing and i know it's not like i i know it's not but my brain does that anyway and it's makes me laugh every time yes I'll I'll allow it. Sure. <laughs> so, I mean, I think you're right, though, that, that that this using that parallel gets us into this frame of mind where we're like, uh oh, for Kenzie, which is the most broken record thing we've said ever. Yeah. Uh oh, for Kenzie. But if we put Kenzie possibly in the frame of mind of what we just saw Victoria as it allows us to maybe observe her throughout the rest of this chapter with 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 the assumption that some not exactly the same as Victoria, but something similar is going on behind her mask. And I might, I mean both the literal mask and, and the metaphorical one. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, I think, I think maybe someone listening could potentially be like, what is the point of these parallels that these guys are talking about? And and I think that that's the point. The point Mm -hmm. is to say, okay, maybe you should be asking these questions of, what is happening with Kinsey right now? What is happening with uh, Damsel of Distress right now? Can can we can we use what was happening with Victoria before as a lens on that? Or or maybe that's the wrong parallel, but still it gets you asking questions in interesting yeah. directions. I think so much of thinking about a book is pattern matching, right? Yeah. Because I think if an author wants you to pick up on something or wants you to think about a certain thing, the way they do that is by relating it to another thing you know about. Um, and, and and that's, so that's when we do these things, that's what we're trying to do. 
Right. Yeah. I, I, cause, cause I think, I think sometimes there's a tendency, especially like, you know, when you're in kind of an Eng, like a high school English, English class mentality, you're like, you're just like, yeah, okay, fine. I, I see that there's parallels between things and there's, there's symbols, but, but so what? And, and, right. and yeah, the, the, so what is like, I don't know, you, you can get some pretty interesting perspectives on stuff in the text that you wouldn't have thought of if you hadn't noticed those parallels. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Um, so before we move on from this, I, we, we talk as we're, we're having this whole Kenzie Victoria exchange after she spooks her, um, Victoria asks Kenzie if she can scan her for radiation mm-hmm. because uh, her hair is falling out and she's kind of freaking out about that. And we get this moment here where she says, which gets to the second thing. Any way you can postpone your workshop time, Dragon sent me some stuff and we need you to send her some data. Oh, shucks, Kenzie said. Kenzie said, collaborating with Dragon, po- postponing workshop time. That sounds like a pain. I honestly don't have any idea if you're being sarcastic. One of those things is a bother, but the other other isn't. Of course I'm being sarcastic, dummy. Postponing workshop time to hang out with people? Collaborating with Dragon? Yeah. I, I like this a lot because one of the things that it made me think about is how Victoria still has this general disconnect to Kenzie, right? Mm-hmm. This this general inability to read her and this general confusion. There's like this this blank space where Kenzie is uh, and, and she can't read her here because of her literal mask and 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 because of the space between them. Mm-hmm. And this like this idea of like I don't get like postponing workshop time, that seems like something that you would love to do, Kenzie. It's like, well no, not if she's she likes hanging out with people more, Victoria. And just like, I love this disconnect. And I think there'll be other moments throughout the story where we'll see this, this essential disconnect between them where Victoria is trying so hard to help this person and understand this person, but she just has trouble doing it. Um, especially because Victoria takes everything from the frame of reference as Cape stuff is the most important stuff. We talked about this with Tristan and I think this is here again. Like, of course the assumption to Victoria is the most important thing in the world is getting tinkering time. Cause that's Cape stuff. And to Victoria, Cape stuff is the most important. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's a great point. But I don't know. It's just really interesting to me. Yeah. And I just wanted to pull that out. Sure. Yeah. I mean, Victoria interacting with Kenzie is like trying to steer a car with a screwdriver jammed into the <laughs> steering column. Sure. Um, um, yeah, it's been a consistent, consistent beat throughout the story that she she doesn't get her and mm-hmm. and she's kind of fumbling at it yeah um, and i wonder if we're ever going to find out what kinsey meant when she I, I forget the quote but it was something along the lines of like kinsey's saying like i'm not worried that i'm going to become obsessed and creepy and stalkery towards you victoria because um something blank <laughs> and 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 yeah, kinsey never really that. explains that yeah. Hmm. Yeah, and th- th- and that hasn't been that hasn't really come up again, right? Yeah, I do not remember the context of that, and I'd it, have to remember the context to to remind myself of if that's been Well, um, yeah. It's shortly after Swan Song died and she's walking with Victoria um in the snow. Um Yeah. But anyway, I I don't think it has come up and that feels that feels related, but maybe yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Sure. So the two of them talk about how Tristan's doing. Yeah, uh, I really, really like this conversation, Matt. First, the, f- the first thing I like that it did is it reminded me that Sveta and Tristan had like weld obsession in common, which I completely forgot about last week when we were going full chocolate on the <laughs> Tristan discussion. Um, I think this is the moment where, as you said, it's kind of confirmed that they were not doing some 
some really complicated let's talk about Victoria thing. They were actually just the the two people closest to Tristan in the group were just talking to Tristan about how he's doing. Um, that all makes sense. And I'm glad the text reminded me of that. Thank you. Thank you, book. Um, but the Scott is reading too much into this moment of this beat, though, is that we see through Kenzie's eyes that Tristan and, and Rain and Sveta all have this thing that binds them together. And, and Kenzie sloughs off the excuse that they did it without her and she's fine with it. But is she like, mm-hmm. I don't know, man, the, the idea that Kenzie would be fine being excluded just because Victoria is also excluded. It made sense to me when it was originally argued. Like when someone said that I was like, yeah, that's fine. She'll be fine. But I don't know, man. I don't know if that's going to set right with Kenzie. Really? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that could be adding to the pile of, of, uh, of Kenzie issues that are happening at this exact mm-hmm. moment. I mean, definitely definitely she's still you know what how how long has it been since the heartbroken all tried to kill her like three days or less like yeah i think less like a day maybe um so i think it was yesterday so that so that kind of thing would be yeah i I think you're right actually so so that kind of thing would actually uh be a sore spot for her at this point yeah totally sure yeah i mean and like you think of like how she might feel about who is connected to her in the book or not um, like you see Tristan, Rain, Sveta have this thing. Victoria has this thing with Sveta. Um, Kenzie, her thing was, was swan song. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and she does have a connection to Victoria. I don't want to dismiss that, but, um, she also consistently doubts herself and is terrified that these people are going to suddenly decide not to like them. So whenever people break off to do their own little thing, I think that absolutely activates something in her. And I, I, I find it hard to believe that she's totally fine with it. Like she says she is here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now that you've said that, I agree. I, I don't think I cottoned onto that, but I think you're, I think you're right. Um, she's probably upset about this, mm-hmm. which explains why she stole the puppy. Yep. She needed comfort. Um, I just love this interaction. Uh, Victoria tells Kenzie Vista and Byron paired up earlier. I saw that was cool. Maybe that's it. I laughed. She she saw she saw she saw I saw how did how did she see? Of course you saw. <laughs> Can't see. Right, right. I mean, what's what's funny is that she is that Victoria could have said Annalise and I paired up earlier, and Kenzie would have said I saw in the same exact tone. <laughs> oh um, gosh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, uh, Kenzie chats with Eel Tank Mech Tinker, which I mention only because I love Eel Tank Mech Tinker. I, I have nothing to add here other than, yeah, that's <laughs> fucking great. Yeah. So we begin priming what I think is going to be the next plot movement. Rain is going to go to sleep at 10.30 p.m., 10.36 p.m., sorry, 10.36. And everybody will have to be ready to act when that happens one way or another. They don't want to hang them out to dry considering how bad it could be. And there's also the opportunity to take advantage of the opening into the Dream Shard world that his whole thing provides. Yeah, remember when... Like two months ago, we were like, oh, shit, after the dream world stuff, what does that mean about rain going to sleep? You're like, "Uh oh, ticking clock. Mm-hmm. It was still ticking. And yep. we reminded us all of it. I, I my problem was I thought it was later in the day than it actually was. Um, yes. So I was yes. just kind of discombobulated. But yeah. and in this movement, we get kind of two options to deal with the situation, right? Like breakthrough and Kenzie were dealing with um we're going to set something up to where we can observe what's going on in there and maybe jump in if he needs help. Or Victoria offers the option of let's just dive through those cracks and go in that way. And, uh, and then we start to get like 
a lot of mirror and glass and specifically through the looking glass imagery here at this point, it'll it'll be brought up specifically in the next chapter. But this is where we're starting to set up and and plant this idea in the story. Yeah, I believe there are two references to Alice's looking glass in the next chapter. Yeah, which is yeah. yeah. Kenzie then scans Victoria for radiation and finds elevated but not lethal levels, which also reminds us that Kenzie just loves those puppies. <laughs> um, man, remember last week when we talked about how good those puppies were for her? Our bad folks. I, I refuse to admit that we were wrong here. The puppies were good for her. It's just the, the stealing of the puppy. That's bad. Yeah. That's and, the bad part. And it was more like borrowing. Surely we no, can explain no, no. this to no, Rachel. No. no. Don't. Don't defend her. She stole a puppy. It was bad. It was bad to steal a puppy. Is it? The, oh, okay. Well, and like, you got to wonder, like, what if she just asked? Like, that's the thing about Kenzie, right? That's the frustrating thing about Kenzie is she does all these things and because she's so afraid of the answer many yeah. times. Like, she's so afraid of asking someone, like, to hang out or asking, like, or, or asking for, like, she's so afraid of all these things. And if she just had the courage or that's not, I don't want to call it courage because that makes her seem like a coward and I don't think she's a coward. But if she just, if she just asked, if she just yeah. was willing to put herself out there just a little, little bit, um, she, Rachel probably would have been like, yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I mean, she, she would have been like, she would have given her like a long list of rules and threatened to murder her if she broke any of them because she's Rachel. But I still think she would have relented or, or, or she would have said, um, no, but you can come back later, and <laughs> which would have been a fine outcome. All, all she, all that happens is she doesn't get to hold a dog for a while, right? It, yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, we talked, I think, relatively recently about the idea that like Kinsey's whole like "lol, I don't have boundaries" is is um, not acceptable. Yes. And this this is kind of an example of that, actually, where she's like, uh, LOL, I, f- I, I kind of, you know, I didn't want to wake it up. And so I fucking stole it. Yeah. It's like, no, that's 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 bullshit. Like, like you 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 really should. I mean, it, maybe like instill a, a trigger action plan of like, if I'm going to do a thing, ask myself, do I need to check with anyone first instead yeah. of just like stealing all their credit card information or whatever it is I was about to do. And. And I feel for her genuinely. I do like this idea of like, I don't know why I do things. I just do them. And I'm like, I feel for you. Yeah. But also you hit it and you use your, you use Tinker Tech to, to hide it from everyone. So like you knew it was bad. Yeah. Like you were, you were aware enough that what you were doing would get you in trouble with people. So like I get, I get that sometimes we just have these impulses and we just do things. Right. I totally get that because I'm the same way too. But, but like, on some level, you know what you're doing is wrong. And right. like you need to you can't just say like I think just saying I don't know why I do things. I just can't help it. Like it's like, OK, understandable. Let's let's work on that problem. Right. Yeah. I mean, I definitely see this as like a behavior of a 13 year old. Yes. Which, oh, yeah. which yeah. she will grow out of just just like even a 13 year old who does not have Kinsey's issues could very well exhibit this kind of behavior. Oh, I mean, absolutely. They're yeah. just they. It just it just takes unfortunately, unfortunately, one of the only ways that it actually happens is you make the same kind of mistake over and over again and you burn your finger on the hot stove enough times that your brain learns not to do this kind of thing anymore. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the issue here, of course, is that that hot stove has the chance of lighting her and everyone around her yeah. on fire every yes. time she puts her finger on it. <laughs> 
yes, the consequences are are worse because of yes. Cape stuff. Yep. So anyway, uh, Victoria takes Kinsey to the location of her new giant gold and black laser cannon. <laughs> Jester serves as the audience surrogate in expressing a desire to fire the laser cannon. Oh, immediately. I, I feel bad for myself for thinking of big guns as just like a giant machine gun or something. Come uh-huh. on, Scott. Think bigger. I know. Giant laser. Like, I feel like we should have put together, because earlier we were like, what could Dragon want with Victoria? Yeah. Dragon She's wants got- to know how to make you a gun. She, she wants to give you a giant fucking laser. Yeah. So we're getting a lot of Jasper stuff in these chapters, aren't we? Like, mm-hmm. not just incidentally. I feel like this chapter does more to humanize Jester than anything else we've really seen to date. Yeah. I mean, he talks about wallpapering his room with posters after Gold Morning, which is just one of those little touches of personality that really makes a person feel real. And then we get this passage. I, I do it with people, too. Find that weird, dark girl who seems like she's struggling to deal with the situation she's, she's in and find an inoffensive way to be there for her. Swansong appreciated it, I'm sure. I'm talking about you, the guy said. <laughs> so I love it. So that was I mean, makes sense, right? Like like I think maybe maybe that even comes through at the time, like like not just in retrospect. The idea yeah. that the idea that he's going out of his way to kind of I mean, because he kind of defends her. I remember like at the very start of the story, there's people being weird about knowing who she is. And he's like, oh, Hey, yeah. shut the fuck up, buddy. Um so yeah. Yeah. He's been great and I, I've always loved him. I've always liked him as a character and I love learning a little bit more about him as this this person that just wants to help people, mm-hmm. sees people that are in need and wants to help them. I mean, Jester is really great here, and I think he's serving an important role in the story as Victoria kind of turns towards the humans for a first time in a while and really starts to examine who they are. He's he's a good kind of representative of the patrol block type of person generally right a kind of a a a mini microcosm of of the whole of the people Mm -hmm. and and so focusing on him is very intentional here and then we're going to move from jester to natalie as we focus on another aspect of humanity um, and what they can offer and what victoria can see through them um he's a great great dude he's great i love him a lot yeah um I love this phrasing in particular. One of these examples of great writing I love this week. We didn't have a lot of common interests, and we'd really only spent time together because we'd spent time together. Yeah. Um, which is how I feel about a lot of people in my past, actually. Yeah, I mean, isn't it like that's? I feel like that's just a that's just a really realistic portrayal of how we sometimes how you get friends, right? Uh-huh. Like that's just the way it happens sometimes, and you just hey, this is person. And I just hung out with them a lot. And now that's why we continue to hang out. Yeah. Um, but but the thing I love about this is it kind of starts at this point where she's not dismissing him, but just kind of looking at like really looking at him for the first time in a while and saying, like, I always thought this guy was kind of goofy. I just hung out with him because he was there. But by the end of this paragraph, it, 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 it transitions into this respect. Right. Mm-hmm. It, like. I think she finishes the sentence with like, he's, he's a man she can respect. Yeah. And, um, it's interesting because part of what she sees here is like his unflinching optimism, right? He's talking about what happens after this, after they survive this, what tomorrow he's, 
being optimistic about that. He's speaking about tomorrow as if it's going to happen and he's not given up. He's not resigned himself to doom and hopelessness. And that is something that she really respects in him. Like this, this ability to look at that and see that. Um, And I, I love, I love that we see her kind of really look at him for maybe the first time in a while. Uh, it's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, it feels like a big step for her to she she kind of does a little check with herself of like, could I find him attractive? And the answer is no. Yeah. But she asks herself the question, which tells you that she sees him as like a a, a being and not yeah. just like background noise. So that's cool. Um, and she she probably never asked herself that question before because sure. yeah yeah. Um, and I mean, you never know. Sometimes the people you never thought would be the people you like end up being the, that people. Yeah, that's true. That that happens. I mean, I feel like that's what high school is, is, is you just put all these people in rooms together until they become friends and start dating each other. And it's, it's basically a social experiment. Just, I mean, you also like learn things. That's part of it. I did you. I, Wait, I mean, you the- learn things <laughs> theoretically. Oh, holy shit. Anyway, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's cool how Dragon has tailored this weapon for her. It's it's her 12 tons of gun, just shy of the limit that she can lift with just the right number of handholds in just the right places to match her force field shape. Yeah, it's it's really it's really great. Good old thoughtful Dragon. Um, I, I like that, like. Victoria realizes that in order for Dragon to do this, she must have like studied her um like her her whole physical shape including the force field mm-hmm. like pretty intently and there's like i think a moment of discomfort with that but then she just recognizes the practicality of it yeah right it, yeah it's realistic sure sure yeah it's good and then, and then we also have jesters like you're not even holding it <laughs> yeah um and like no one responds to that. Nobody says anything uh-huh. and clarifies anything to him. It's just like we don't we don't have time for a peanut gallery conference right now. I'm lifting a twelve ton laser gun. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. Uh so Rachel shows up at this point and it's a it's definitely a new, very restrained Rachel and, and mm-hmm. mature because uh she takes back the puppy without killing or even maiming anyone. Puppy gate twenty nineteen. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, I mean, I do I do like you're absolutely right that Rachel uh, of this story handles this in a much better way than an older version of Rachel would. If we did a Rachel flashback, we would see her murder everyone. Um, But I I think I like that we immediately get the sense of how bad this is. Even though Rachel manages to not murder anyone, she stole a puppy, Matt. Kenzie Mm -hmm. stole a puppy. This is not only is this bad because of Rachel like because of who Rachel is, but it, it's specific to her trigger event. It's specific to the, the thing she worries about the most. Um, this is big. It's bad. And the text doesn't shy away from that fact. Like the world is ending. People are fighting Titans in the background, but this becomes our focus. Now this becomes yeah. the focus that leads us through the rest of this chapter. And I think that there's, there's intentionality there, right? There's like, one one of the things this is signaling, I think, to me, is that all that plot stuff, that's important. Absolutely. That's it's the narrative. But the character stuff is is the book. Yeah. And and so all this is happening on this thing with Kenzie happens and our attention 
totally shifts to that because that is what matters more. The character stuff matters more. Kenzie and how Kenzie is doing and how Kenzie is going to interact with all these people around her and what the fallout of this could be is more important than any of that. Yeah, um, th- this this is and all of the characters, 100 percent of the characters understand that this is the focus now. Right. Yep. Um, I, it's it's awesome. Yeah. And I mean, look, I think there might be some people that find that disappointing, I guess, um, <laughs> that want the focus of the story to be on the big monsters that everyone's fighting in the background. And I get that. Like, we just had a, a bunch of chapters of that. Like, mm-hmm. so it's not like we're not getting that. We had a bunch of chapters before. We're going to get more chapters of it in the in the future. But the, the the driving force to me of the what the book is trying to do is these moments is yeah. Kenzie stole a puppy. Right. Um, so. I mean, I, I think it's um, I think it's like textually what's happening in, in, in this pair of chapters, actually, is this idea that. You know, it, it doesn't matter if you win the naval battle, if your ship is so full of holes and you didn't bother to plug any of the holes type. That's okay. Classic metaphor for me. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the point being, the point being like if we defeat the Titans, but we, but we let, we let this whole Kenzie puppy situation get out of hand because we weren't paying attention, then we've still failed. Yeah. And, and yeah. it's, it's like, like you have to take care of the Kenzies of the world Sure. Even while you're putting out what are objectively bigger fires, mm-hmm. you, you if you don't make the time to protect the Kinsey's, and, and all these people understand this because they're all they're all from this background of having been the the person in a terrible situation, and they know that these things just get worse if they're not dealt with, if they're not seen to, um, and uh, like like yeah, it's it's, I mean I I, I think. I think it's worth kind of belaboring this point, actually, this idea that the the story, the story turns on a dime away from super laser to, uh-oh, puppy lady is mad at little girl. Yeah. We need to deal with this. That is so what this story is about. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if, if any moment in the story makes it clear to me that this is what the story is mostly concerned with, it's this one, right? Yeah. Um you know, we, we go from this moment, like next chapter, Victoria has this this argument with everyone in her team about how they need to do something. They need to be fighting. They need to be like we can't even if we're tired, even if you, everyone that is tired, everyone that doesn't feel like they're up to it, they have to be in this. They have to be. But that all went away when Kenzie stole a puppy. Yeah, because that you're right. That is that is what is important. That mm-hmm. is what matters. These interpersonal relationships, the relationships between team members and between teams and how those relationships strengthen us and how damaging those relationships can destroy us is what this book is about. Mm-hmm. And everything else is plot. And it's important. Of course, it is. It's plot. But it's not the most important thing. Yep. Let's let's get back to let's get back to Kinsey Gate proper. So all right. Um. So okay, before sorry, I'm I'm uh, never mind. We ju- we I jumped think, around a little. Yeah, bit. Yeah, we did jump around That's a bit. Our so, fault. so so uh, Victoria is also simultaneous, I guess, with all of this, trying to get this answer to this question that's been bugging her since last week, which is how is everybody holding together so well? Yeah, and I like how she asked Jester, and he's like. 
well, I could tell you, but you'd be mad at me. Yeah. <laughs> it's really great. It kind of builds up. It, it it serves really well to like build up what the answer to this question is in your mind, right? You're like, yeah. what, what what could it be? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's almost a dread with it. You're like, oh, yeah. God, yeah, some terrible secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so Victoria decides it's a priority to go ahead, uh, to, sorry, to get ahead of this evolving Rachel puppy situation. And so they try to find the team. Uh, they, they find the team. Uh, they declare a mini crisis, which everyone accepts as a valid and important mini crisis once once it's explained, and then the team all immediately splits up to rapidly cover many different bases to try to address this new emergency. Yep. Yeah, and we kind of touched on this already. Yeah. But this is this is exactly I think demonstrating of what the book is primarily concerned with. Yep. Yeah. At, at this point, um, Victoria surprises Damsel by flying <laughs> up to her, which draws a parallel between traumatized Victoria and unmoored Damsel, perhaps. Yeah, I, and I like that. I like that. Like one of the things that I think is so interesting about this is Victoria is so she's so in her head a lot of the times, and we we see very clearly how how much she's suffering and how much she's going through and how barely keeping it together she is. And sometimes we maybe lose lose the fact that probably everyone else is having a similar reaction, maybe not quite the same, but maybe similar. Um, and, and I love these little beats where we show these people freak out, reinforce that idea that it's not just Victoria that's going through this, these feelings of dread and doom and uncertainty and, and fear. It's everyone. It's even the people that put up this big front, even people like damsel, even people like Kenzie who pretend like, uh, they, they're always good and always smiling, uh, are on the edge and and really rattled and we reinforce that through just this little tiny beat sure yeah it's it's easy to forget that this damsel is you know an ashley um yeah and she she is gonna be upset by everything that's happening yeah uh rachel sorry damsel tells her where to find tattletale and we finally get this exchange rachel i said look out she was immediately alert turning to pick up her coat take me Imp's follow-up comment was cut off as I immediately took flight. Um, it took somebody in the uh, subreddit to point out to me that Imp was almost certainly going to say just the f- best thing ever uh, <laughs> in response to take me. Um, but, you know, we missed it. So. Well, it's okay. You can headcanon it, and it's hilarious in my head. Uh, I love everything about this interaction right here. Yes. It, it, this is a million words of buildup paying off in this one moment. Victoria and Tattletail still do not get along, but they understand each other in a way that few capes do. I think two words. That's all it takes. Rachel look out. Victoria understands Tattletail understands her power. Uh, Tattletail understands Victoria and bam, that's all it takes. Go, yeah. go. Yeah. It's and perfect. And like we said, she immediately takes it fully seriously whatever else she was dealing with she was certainly doing something she's tattletale yeah it's yeah. it's dropped without comment this is the new priority <laughs> yep uh so as they're flying tattletale tells her that she's got a chemical burn and not radiation sickness i like how we're all like thank god about this but it still means like she got fucked up yeah <laughs> like, a chemical burn is not a minor thing right it's it's i mean probably going to result in scarring like yeah. in her hairline which is not great so they find Rachel kicking all the other kids out of her stable, which is obviously going to make things much worse. Mm-hmm. Tattletail goes to talk her down, and Victoria takes the kids to get some food uh, to kind of calm them down, keep an eye on them, and then runs into Natalie, who she finally asks her question. Um, and the answer is uh, what we kind of jokingly said 
as as a as a one off at the very end of last week's episode, which is Vicky for us, it's just a fucking Tuesday. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know that that's I didn't know that was a thing. That we I cracked just, it. Right. Like I didn't think I was cracking anything. I think we I don't think we even wrote that in the script. I think it was literally just you said something at the tail end of the episode and I jumped on it because I was like, yeah, yeah, it, it, it clicked something in my uh. head. Um, but yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense, right? That, that exactly what we were talking about, that these are people that just do this, that just, that just do that. This is how they exist. This is what they do. Um, and it's nothing new. And, and I love how the next chapter takes this parallel, takes this humans are to capes as capes are to Titans and runs with it in really interesting directions. So it's not just, not just like we, we treat it as like a one-off beat. A one, I, I like almost as a joke, yeah. but it is not there. It is informing this part of the story very much. Yeah. It's the, it's the lens she tries to use. I mean, that's, that's exactly what we're going to talk about now. So let's move into 18.9 where we have actually skipped a little bit forward in time. Uh, Victoria is now still with Natalie. Um, but now with Kinsey in the workshop. So Victoria paces and thinks out loud with Natalie as a sounding board while Kinsey tinkers. We're treated to a pair of extremely weird uh, tinker screens yeah. uh, that, that, that Kinsey's using. Like one of them's putting off like fire, like literal Just fire. Shooting fire, yeah. Yeah, cool. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit before we dive into this proper. The opening of this chapter spends about three rather lengthy paragraphs setting the scene for us. We're in mm-hmm. this workshop. Kenzie is tinkering. There's shit everywhere but it's really interesting to me on what victoria focuses on we we see immediately that the chair kenzie is sitting in is too big for her we got that weird monitor pumping out heat she uses words like juxtapose uh to compare all the dusty fallen religious artifacts with the, the shiny new sheen on this tinker stuff and even amongst the tinker stuff we're seeing things that don't line up stylistically with each other there's no sense of order no cohesion as victoria puts it she looks at this lab and she sees chaos and it is a chaos of a lack of coordination and this i think is a perfect way of using scene and scenery to reflect internal thoughts of a character because remember that's one thing you can do with first person perspective it's not just setting the scene it is setting the scene as our protagonist sees it so the things that victoria focuses on in this room and the way in which she describes them say things about her state of mind and she sees chaos she sees juxtaposition she sees things that are sitting next to each other that shouldn't um it is it is confusion it is lack of coordination that is what victoria is feeling right now yeah that's that's a great point i feel like if you if you kind of drew a picture of this scene uh and showed it to someone with no familiarity with ward they would just have no idea where to even begin interpreting what they were looking at <laughs> right um and now i want to see that picture but uh <laughs> but yeah no that that's a fantastic point mm-hmm. um we also learn like kind of from the background that currently earth's greatest defenders are Semiramis, Little Midas, and Labrat. Oh, okay. As the old saying goes, the enemy of a giant pure shard form of an undying alien power is my tentative, mostly untrustworthy ally. Mm-hmm. Right, that's the that's the saying? That's it. Yeah, that's the normal form of it. <laughs> we also learned that Arachne is the only Titan that is yet to network with anyone. Uh, assuming that the stranger Titan has not networked, but we right. can't can't tell anyway. Yeah. But- <laughs> God. <laughs> oh my god I, I can't i can't think about that um 
So Vicky continues to explore this the syllogism, this capes are to humans as titans are to capes. She mm-hmm. tries to tug on the metaphor and see if it bears any fruit. Natalie keeps insisting that she's not going to be useful at this, but she's pretty good at pointing out how uncooperative Breakthrough was with her, and by analogy, how little we should expect the titans to care about human-centric concerns. Yeah, um, this is like my favorite part of the book, where we just see <laughs> Natalie almost passive-aggressively taking out the fact that she's been ignored for one and a half million words yeah uh and now victoria's like hey help help me understand this uh-huh. this i don't understand this whole why don't they listen to us <laughs> i don't i don't get it well. and natalie's like oh i don't know victoria yeah why don't they yeah. listen to us why don't yeah you could give them sound advice about the future and the big picture and they could choose to press on or ignore you <laughs> victoria <laughs> there's so much shade here i, I love know. it it's so good. There's um, so many times where Natalie says something and Victoria responds with a, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, this isn't a perfect metaphor, right? Natalie even admits as such, but it doesn't mean it doesn't have its value. Um, and, and, and pulling at that value is, is really important. And, and I love Victoria's admit, like willingness to do that. And she says something really interesting in here to me. She says, this information isn't coming from Tattletale. It's not coming from Kenzie scans. This is coming from a new different source. And I want to investigate that source. I want to look into that source. And I think it's because she's had this realization about humanity, about humans, about their ability to cope in a way in which she and Cape Dumb at large isn't able to. And suddenly she sees in them value that she has not before. And suddenly that perspective matters to her i think she the the end of the chapter last chapter she says something the effect of i'm too close to the powers to see this i need you um and that is a big admission from victoria i mean that is something that she has in the past not been willing to do yeah uh, it's very interesting in context of what you were saying earlier about her previously being really interested in making sure that the civilians had a good impression of of the capes but Mm -hmm. um yeah I, I agree, though. It's it's definitely a big moment for her at this point in the story. Mm-hmm. I, do, I do like this moment where she says uh, they barely see us because they're so caught up in their own agendas, which is also <laughs> capes. Yeah. Uh, but they are in conflict, though. If we have an advantage, it's that we're more or less unified. And I'm like, are you, though? <laughs> like, I think the capes are unified in that those those are those are bad guys. Yeah, um, those are the bad ones. It's, but it's existential risk makes you unified but that sure. doesn't mean you're actually unified i mean right i mean like we haven't seen this happen in this story but in the last story we had an existential risk and the young bond went off to their own world and the i forget all the names of the different groups but like people were people were being selfish and, and basically the good guys did this like unilateral move to kind i mean they actually sent leviathan against like a refugee camp and killed a bunch of people it was yeah it was, it was not a not a story of everyone coming together with no anyway that, that's remember, a tangent remember when taylor did that that was I, yeah remember when taylor killed that refugee camp <laughs> that was neat yeah she she's she's unambiguously good anyway paragon um, of virtue <laughs> anyway um uh, yeah I, so, so i wanted to talk to you okay. before, sorry I, I keep i keep making you, a stick to this but do it I want to talk to you about the choice Victoria makes here to bring Natalie in on the information she knows from Tattletale. 
that this is the status quo now, right? Because mm-hmm. that is information that Tattletale sh- shared with her and basically said, don't don't tell anybody this. Um, and she hasn't. She has not let this information to anyone. But now she brings Natalie in on it. And that's a very interesting choice to me. Like, we've talked so much about Natalie and Victoria and their relationship and the complicated nature of it and the, the ebb and flow of Victoria's respect and lack of respect for Natalie. Um, and now she's letting her in on a secret that very, very, very few people know about. Yeah. I think Natalie's always been this super important character to the story in the background. She's always been the constantly unacknowledged last member of breakthrough and here that's all, that's all paying off, right? You've been mm-hmm. here the whole time and now Victoria is going to finally, hopefully, acknowledge like, oh, this person's value is um, indispensable, actually. She brings something to the team that none of the other members of the team can possibly provide because they just don't have that perspective. Yeah, yeah. So here, uh, Natalie uh, is the first to, uh, in the chapter to broach the idea that Breakthrough doesn't have to be responsible for every single goddamn thing that happens. No way. This is a thread that will continue throughout this chapter, and it feels very satisfying that people in the text are finally pointing this out to our protagonist. <laughs> Thank God, right? I think we've been saying this, like, since chapter three. Uh-huh. You know, Victoria, you don't... Oh, no, you're gonna. <laughs> oh, okay, all right, yeah. I yeah, guess I mean, it's more exciting this way. I mean, but story-wise, this does get us to the point where Victoria, even if she doesn't quite listen to this, and I, I, I have no doubt in my mind that Victoria is just incapable of actually being like, yeah, I am going to sit this one out. But um, it does get her to the point where she starts looking towards other people for the solution. Um, like, and this, this, this kind of just plot-wise leads us down the road of that gets her to click about her solution at the end of this chapter. Uh, whether or not that solution is good or not will will be seen later. But uh, this is what gets us there. But I, I, I like here the the really interesting thing to me about this was Natalie says this thing is like maybe you guys just aren't the ones equipped to handle this. Maybe it's Valkyrie. Maybe it's Bonesaw or someone else with a power. And the ability to change things on a major scale. And Victoria immediately goes, my sister. And then, mm-hmm. like, shudders. And, oh, man, it's this moment where, like, oh, shit. Like, what if what if the solution to this thing goes through Amy? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I thought it was really interesting because there have been a lot of the, there's been a lot of moments in this story where my mind went to Amy immediately. Like a lot of stuff sure. relating to Sveta, for example, where I'm like, oh, Amy could fix this immediately. And Victoria's mind pretty consistently does not in those situations. In, in any situation uh-huh. where, where Amy would be useful, her, her mind just doesn't go there. Her mind goes to Amy when, when it's about risk and danger and death, but not about utility. So this is actually unusual because she's like, hey, Amy could actually be extremely powerful and useful in solving this horrible, horrible crisis that we have. Yeah. Um, which... I, I I guess I see as good uh, in in a sense. I mean, she's able to she's able to kind of see her sister objectively. I think is what's sure. happening here. And I'm not um, I'm not convinced that that's the direction the book's going to go. Mm-hmm. But I, I like the idea of that as a, a possibility that our protagonist is going to need to explore. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, like it's interesting. We don't know what Amy's up to at this point, right? Like the last we saw her, her dad was like literally dragging her by the arm to therapy. Um, and we don't know what's going on anymore. We don't know what's happening, what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, and so we're kind of, 
we knew, like, I think we got a word from Kenzie that she was on the battlefield helping in some way. Um, but it's, it's this big kind of black box in our story right now. Yeah. We don't even know if she actually did that therapy or not. So mm-hmm. yeah. I, I will definitely get back to that. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. So let's talk for a second about the moment, uh, with the monitor showing the horrific battle against Ophion. Uh, Victoria is sickened. She's like, this is like a really strong reaction from Victoria. She wants to turn it off, meaning it must be really bad. And Kenzie's like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. I'm, I'm working. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. It's one of those Kenzie moments where I'm just like, like Victoria, I'm continuously uncomfortable and unsure of what to think. Right. Is Kenzie secretly grossed out and is just hiding it? Or does this stuff truly just not phase her anymore? I don't know the answer to that question. Do you? I I, I am unsure. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 f- I feel like she doesn't react the same way to the kind of heinous shit that, that most people do. I think that's been a yeah a trait of hers. Um, Especially Victoria does, yeah. Yeah. Um, so so I, I, I think it's just kind of a Kinseyism. Uh, but it is, it is, you know, it's being shown to us, so it's important, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, like... I just feel like I feel like when we come back and if, if if we ever come back and read this book again, like all these moments, all these little moments are just going to stand out so much more and be like, oh, that's what that's what that was. That's what that was leading. And actually, the uncertainty I'm feeling right now was l- meant to lead me down a path of something with Kenzie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I just think this is more funny. Um, Natalie Shade. Victoria says, I'm not good at leaving things alone. No, you are not, Natalie said. <laughs> and for, th- it's, it's funnier because there's no comma to me yeah. anyway. Yeah. And and there's no contraction there. Like, I feel like no, you're yeah. not wouldn't have landed as hard as no, you are not. Yeah. Like that is like deliberate. That is there's <laughs> yes. the, like to, to not use the contraction there in dialogue is purposeful. <laughs> yes. Yes. You can, hear, you can hear her say it in your head. Yeah. Right. Exactly. I love it. I, the, the, the part that you didn't include on this is the part where she goes, hey, Victoria, turns out you were totally right about Carol. Remember when you warned me about Carol back when we first met? You were totally right. Sorry. Oops. Yeah. Um, I think this is just reiterating the fact that when it comes to her family, I think we can basically trust Victoria mm-hmm. and her point of view. Like, I think there are moments in this book where the book has invited us to question the the point of view and the reliable nature of our, our protagonist. Uh, when it comes to her family, though, I think we can trust her. Yeah. Also, while Bo is closing a, a conversational, minor conversational point that was open like a million words ago. Yeah, that's um, true. So, you know, good, good job, Brett. Good writing. Sure. Uh, um, let's, let's talk about Natalie for a second. Sure. Um, story's not over, but she's been here at so many important moments in the story. And here I feel like this is the crux of it. You know? Like, yeah. I mean, yeah. we've, we've kind of talked about this a bit already today, but the, the idea of the humans becoming central, the idea of Natalie being a representative of humanity in fact, you could call her the representative of humanity on on breakthrough um, on the team. Um, and and here she she keeps saying like, oh, I'm, I'm not useful. I can't really contribute much here. But then she's basically providing exactly what Victoria needs here, which is a bit of a bit of pushback, a bit of perspective, a bit of objectivity. 
And um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, when you first said you wanted to have this conversation, I, I just I just kind of want to track where my brain went and, and how my brain works sometimes, because okay. the first place I jumped was, oh, Natalie's like the moral compass of the story. And, that, and then that was I first jumped to that and I was like, wait a minute, that's not right, because first of all, our protagonist already has a relatively good moral compass. Like she doesn't always make the best decisions, but like morality wise, uh, she's pretty sharp. She has a pretty distinct understanding of right and wrong. So I don't think Natalie necessarily serves as that. Um, And then this idea that Natalie has always been there for the important moments of the story, but she's never, she's never been framed as like a check on Victoria. Like, They've they've never been framed as so diametrically opposed on opinions that it leads to actual any kind of conflict. And and the ignoring of Natalie's advice has been unquestionably the wrong thing. Like and I think if if someone was a moral compass, that's probably how the story would frame them. Mm-hmm. But as you said, I, I think she she is a example of the human perspective, not a complete example. I don't think she's meant to encompass all of humanity, but she is an example of the perspective offered by someone not quite so close to the powers and, and a person who does that in a respectful and, and kind way. Like, like we, we continually through this book offer perspectives on capes from non capes. Like we had it with Eric. We had it with, with Gary. We have it with Natalie. Um, we had it with Presley. Like these humans in this story serve the role primarily of a reflection of what capedom looks like when you're not this close to it. Yeah. Um, and I, I think her role in that is this very interesting one. Um, and it goes back to in the flashback, we we had this recurring beat of capes are cool. And that's the thing that's been throughout this entire story. Right. Like when people ask, why, why did you get involved with this? When they ask humans, why are you here? Why did you get involved with this? Their answer usually revolves around this idea of capes are cool. Um, and we contrast that with Victoria's answer in that flashback, which are capes are important. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that that distinction fascinating um, because it shows just like it shows how how the people outside of it are motivated by it and therefore how they can show that see that different perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I, I, I'm thinking in, in this moment about what an interesting twist it is on the genre on the superhero genre like if you had every time superman went on a mission he goes back to base and and the the, the lawyer of the justice league is like um all right so we're gonna need to call the judge and retroactively get some warrants about all those walls that you look through with your x-ray vision um you destroyed this street and so um, we're going to have to deal with that. I, you know, obviously it was in the course of doing your job, so we'll probably get it settled. But you know, I, you're going to have to appear in court probably on this date. So I'll and, and like it, it's this injection of of reality into the superhero genre, which really part and parcel of the of the reconstruction of the genre that that I think is, is what Parahumans is. Um, mm-hmm. But it's it's something that really wasn't that much in Worm. Um, the, the the idea of of a, a literal lawyer being on the team and and having to chime in and, and be like you did what now uh, is just is just a great a great addition to like the yeah. mythology if you will of of this world yeah I mean what do you think about the idea that like Victoria's refusal of Natalie's point of view throughout a lot of the stories was never specifically framed as bad right mm-hmm. it wasn't specifically 
Victoria, you have made the wrong decision here. Um, I mean, what do you think? Like, so we have these instances again and again and again where she does that. And, and yet Natalie sticks around. So we finally get to a point where Victoria once again sees value in her and now is turning to her for the, the, some of the most important questions of the story. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering the question that you asked, but, but the first thing that jumps to mind is how interesting it is that Victoria did not really care much about Natalie's input when it was in a context where like she was brought on to be basically the lawyer for the team, mm-hmm. but they never took her legal advice Yeah, <laughs> where Victoria is taking her advice is like, how, how human, how do human true? Yeah. How human think. And that's way more valuable to her. And that's, I think where she's going to be most valuable to, to break through and, and to Victoria. And, and, and it's where she's willing to actually listen. Uh, Cause I think ultimately Victoria wasn't wrong to not give too much of a shit about legal advice because they're in the fucking post-apocalypse. <laughs> like, right. like it never, it never mattered that she ignored Natalie's advice. Sure. Because it, because Victoria wasn't, because it didn't, because it didn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. So, it's not, but, it's not yeah. like Victoria ignoring Natalie's advice led to Titans, right? Like, yes. I think if that, if that were the case, obviously, like there would be a, there would be a lot more meaning behind that but yeah, yeah. Th- that the book does not go there that the book is not interested in painting this picture where like oh you should have listened to natalie um i i, I agree um, yeah. but i do think it also says something about natalie and it says something about the people that not only get into this thing but then stay in it and actually try to understand these people as people like I, I i hesitate so much to bring up eric again uh because it's just a, a recipe for disaster but contrasting natalie's view on capes and eric's view on capes as two people who presumably got into this thing for similar reasons aka mm-hmm. capes are cool yeah and yet natalie has clearly through her time with this team like learned more about what the experience of being a cape is than a lot of humans have mm-hmm. um like eric for exist for instance yeah yeah that that's a good point i, I think that might it might actually be interesting to contrast and, and compare because the injection of eric into the story now in retrospect reads as a kind of partial segue into this idea that these human characters are going to be more important mm-hmm. yeah um and yeah, I mean, I, 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 I now, I, I now, I'm thinking like, oh, I get it. Like Eric was meant to be the first taste of of this. Like, the human perspective is actually going to matter here. Yeah. yeah. So okay, cool. Even when it's uh, you know, wrong. Yeah, and Victoria <laughs> rejects it because she hates him personally. <laughs> yes. Um. So yeah, I also think it's interesting that Victoria and Natalie uh, literally list off all of her injuries. And yeah. what's funny about it is that it starts out as Natalie kind of like eye-rollingly pointing out that Victoria is terrible at self-care. And Victoria then takes over and turns it into a brag. Um, so here's the quote. We can resist our imperatives, I said, or manage them. And then Natalie says, she says with a twisted muscle in her foot, a bullet wound in one arm, a burn on her hand. And then Victoria takes over claw marks from an acid centipede in two places in the same arm. I have the burn. Part of my hand was flayed. I lost the fingernail on that hand this morning. Natalie shuddered. Chemical burn in my hairline, I said, tracing the area on my scalp. It was still tender. Noticeable? Um, 
Like it's, this reminds me of very recently when she did a similar thing with Mike where she's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I have better scars than you. I'm more of a badass. Yeah. She's, she's very, this is part of her identity. This whole battle scarred cape thing. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I didn't read this as a brag the first time I read it, but I, I don't disagree with you there. I, like why else would she continue? Like <laughs> Natalie is using this to draw a point about how she's awful right. <laughs> at this. And yeah. she's like, here, let me give you more examples. Um, I, I totally agree. Like, and it goes back to the, the, the conversation with shortcut as well, where she kind of points out that his costume being perfect and, and immaculate mm-hmm. doesn't show off as much as, as her, as, her broken uh, mm-hmm. destroyed costume does because it proves it proves to Victoria that she's in it, that she's giving her all that she's putting her entire body and her life on the line to help people. Um, and, and she does wear that as, as kind of kind of a point of pride um, yeah. that it is evidence of her contributions. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's downright hilarious when you, when you actually look at it because she's, she's saying like, you, you kind of fail to resist your, your imperatives. And then Victoria's like, yeah, totally. I totally do. Don't I? Yeah. Yeah. I'm you're awesome. right. You're totally right. Check out this chemical burn. Can yeah. you see, can you see, uh, the, the <laughs> scar that's going to be there? Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, um, so then uh, the rest of the team joins them. I just want to enjoy this moment when Tristan sees the biological computer screen that Kinsey's using. Um, Oh, I see, Tristan said. Is this a new direction you're going? No, gosh. I wish I had the free time to dabble in organic cameras and screen technology, but I really don't. Thank God, Tristan said, (laughs) clapping gauntlets together in a praying gesture, raising his face to the ceiling. I I love it because, like, you can can hear in his voice that he's trying to be supportive toward the beginning, and then when he realizes she's she's not going to be doing that, he's like, oh. (laughs) uh, It's so great. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, she's like milking something <laughs> to, yeah. to make lenses <laughs> just casually yeah the what f- fingering the sphincter yeah. <laughs> of the of the of the screen and it's like i haven't really even spent time <laughs> researching this technology what uh yeah wow um so tristan has some things to say here he compares the fight against the titans to the fight against paris says, it feels like we went into it emotional, tired, and raw, Tristan said. We lost sight of broader objectives. And overall, uh, this is like just a really beautiful moment for Tristan. He's reflecting on his mistake with with clarity, with kind of distance and objectivity and, and some bittersweetness, but but mainly clarity. And he's trying to learn from it so that they don't make the same kind of mistake again by rushing into a fight when they don't feel like they have anything to lose. He also reframes Natalie's earlier point that sometimes if you're doing really poorly, it's better to just let a threat persist than to try to be the one to take on that threat. Yeah, I I, I love this moment. I agree. I, I think one of the things this is doing for me is, is there's one thing I think learning that the thing you did was wrong and bad and acknowledging it is one thing. But evidencing how you have changed and grown from that realization is another. And to me, that's what this moment is doing. Tristan has not only fully understand and copped to the horrible, awful thing he did to his brother, but he's also taken that and attempted to bring that to change in who he is. And and that is evidenced here in, I feel like I am at the point that I was back then. And I recognize these patterns in myself. And I recognize that these patterns led to a terrible decision I made. It led to bad decision making. And I really think 
I really think it's really important, guys, that we understand that when you're in this frame of mind, you make bad decisions. And I don't want to be that person anymore. I don't want to do that thing anymore. This is important. And, and that's a perfect way of showing his transformation, showing literally what he has learned. It's one thing to say I did a bad thing. I, I, it's one thing to say I made the worst decision in my life and I've regretted it ever since. I think it's important to say it. But that's just words. This is putting this into action. This is saying, look, guys, we're close to doing this thing again. And that recognition is so important. That's that's change to me. Yeah, totally. The, the only way that you get this kind of pattern recognition is by really internalizing um, the the understanding yeah. of, of, of the harm of what you did and, and what led to it and yeah, thinking yeah. over it so long that when you see it coming up again, you recognize it for what it is. And act on it. You don't stay quiet. You don't you don't run off to yourself in the church and, and be alone. You bring that to your team. You bring that to your support system and say, look, here's what I'm seeing. We got to do something about this. Yeah. And, and that's why I call it kind of a beautiful moment. I think it's really cool that it's happening at this point in the story, which, you know, we, we got what I'm going to just refer to as the Victoria interlude um, last chapter. Mm-hmm. And, and, and here we're kind of seeing, you know, we, we had the Capricorn interludes a, a, a quite a long time ago and he's clearly had more time to process things and he's developed in his in, in his way of thinking about these things even further and, and his relationship with Byron has has progressed and and everything about him has advanced and now he's at this point where I, I do see this as being like one of the later stages of recovery where you can just look back on the bad thing that happened and and maybe you still feel negative feelings about it but there is a kind of clarity and objectivity that you can have and 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 say okay that was then I'm not going to make that kind of mistake again. And and this is, this is what I'm going to do to make sure of that. Yeah, totally agree. So, um, Victoria entirely predictably isn't having any of it. (laughs) Um, she, she responds to all this with, it's like playing the lottery. Buying one ticket is insanity, but buying a thousand tickets gives you a thousand chances. I asked Victoria, the winning strategy to playing the lottery, just buy thousands of tickets. (laughs) But, Bless you, Victoria. I love you so much. But you kind of forgot the lottery tickets cost money. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so perfect that she would say something that's nonsense at this point, right? Yeah, because yeah. she's defending what is basically a, a, a wrong and indefensible position. But she's just like, yeah, but I'm not. I don't want to. I I'm not. I don't want to change. I want to be the way I am. And so, lottery tickets. Yeah, yeah and it, it, I think it's so funny how immediately she gets called out on this analogy immediately. And then abandons it immediately and says, no, no, you're missing my point. Uh-huh. And she abandons the analogy to just basically say that throwing as, as many human beings and capes at this problem is the acceptable solution. Um, that That's that's what we should do. That's the acceptable solution. It, it increases the odds. Yeah. Ergo, we should do it. Which is not addressing Tristan's concern at all. No. Uh, but we'll get to that in a bit. Yeah. So, so Sveta then also pushes back against her. First, removing Victoria's uh, foot from her torso. Uh, Then she says, hey, you're sounding a lot like Cauldron there, buddy. And Victoria replies that this is different because she's volunteering. And that is actually a pretty valid rebuttal to Sveta's point. But but it's not really a rebuttal to Tristan's point. And it's not really a rebuttal to Natalie's point. Mm -hmm. And Natalie kind of follows this up with, I'm worried 
that some members of your group would sacrifice themselves even when it wasn't necessary. And I think we know who she's talking about. Yeah, I think that's the Natalie way of saying you, some yeah. members of your group. <laughs> yeah. I, I completely agree. And and look, on the one hand, Victoria's point certainly feels noble, right? When literally everything depends on us finding a way to win, fighting while hurt should be the expectation. Of course. I'm I, If I'm all that's standing between the world and annihilation, then who cares if I break my arm? Who cares if I get shot? Who cares if I get burned? And my hair starts falling out. I should be willing to take that damage when those are the stakes. That's true. And I admire it. But that's not the point that Byron is or Tristan is making here. The point is not that. The point is when you are not at your best, when you are losing focus on the bigger, bigger picture, you don't always just hurt yourself. You make choices that could end up hurting other people. Choices that you didn't see coming or you made in in a low point. And I think this point becomes literal when we're talking about the concept of tightening. What if participating in this fight when you shouldn't is what causes you to go tighten and make the problem worse? Yeah. If if buying a thousand lottery tickets, but one percent of those tickets exploded randomly, (laughs) wouldn't you think about how many tickets you're buying a little bit closer. Right. Wouldn't you think about that a little bit? And yeah. she, she doesn't address that point at all. Yeah. Doesn't literally just avoids that. And, and I mean, I think, I think her getting her foot hurt, you know, is an example of that where she, she, she did something that was downright foolish, right? She like crawled mm-hmm. underneath an armor panel on a Titan and it's like, okay, that, that was not, that was not intelligent, like um, c- calculating, thinking through the risks like Victoria is a very smart fighter. Like yeah. so, so much of this book is her her internal monologue as she thinks through a fight. That that was that was so reckless, and it could have gotten her killed, and it could have gotten her injured worse than she actually was. Um, I think that's like a sample of what of what uh, Tristan's talking about, actually. Yeah, I agree. I agree, and and I love this moment uh, where Victoria is trying to argue her point still and says. I'm not going to twist any. She's talking about volunteering, right? I, I'm not like Cauldron because I am volunteering and I am not going to twist anyone's arm asking them to do it. If any of you feel like you can't do it, I wouldn't hold it against you. And Sveta's like, yeah, you might. <laughs> I know you. You'd make the judgment, but you wouldn't act on it, which is very true, right? Yeah. Victoria would silently internally make that judgment call, but she is also a person that is relatively in control of herself and would hopefully not allow that judgment to, to come out in action. Yeah. But then Sveta goes on and saying, and says, you might not make it consciously, right? Like that, that you would have that feeling and it could influence you subconsciously, especially when you're in your low points. And I don't know. I, I feel like she's got a point there. Totally. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking and I don't, my brain doesn't, index things by the Dewey Decimal System, so I can't really get to an answer. But I feel like Victoria has been injured like more than twice as much as anybody anybody else in the course of the story. Like like everybody's taken an injury. Everybody on a breakthrough has been injured. Mm-hmm. I mean, Swan Song's dead. But That's a pretty big injury. Other than Man. that. <laughs> and I mean, and, and that actually kind of makes my point, if anything, that like she was in this place where she was like willing to throw herself into this situation where death was very likely and yeah. then death happened. And Victoria here continually, I mean, you could argue she's kind of the 
the what's the word for the person who taunts in in the in the game in, in video games i don't know whatever the tank she's i guess she's the tank yeah i guess she's the tank so she takes more injuries but also she takes injuries because she's throwing herself into situations that are going to get her hurt over and over and over and it's a pattern and i think your team has noticed it and i think that's what's driving them to all collectively be like calm down for a minute let's think yeah. about other options yeah yeah and she really doesn't i don't know she really doesn't though yeah yeah she just like i think i think it is unquestionably true that this conversation does influence victoria but i don't think it does in the way that they were they were hoping it would <laughs> I, I don't think she heard them honestly I, I don't i really don't think that she processed like like she did not have the moment of like dang they're right that that's that this is a pattern with me like no there's nothing like that it's 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 like eh, i'm going to think of a way of weaseling out of of acknowledging what you're saying yeah i think so. i think a better way of saying that is maybe that she only heard the part of it that she wanted to mm-hmm. or or she heard the part of it that connected to a plan mm-hmm. that she could formulate which is <laughs> Her yeah. running a plan, which is still her being involved in. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Commando mission. Okay, sure. Victoria. Fine. Yeah. That, that's what we were talking about. Commando mission. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. That's exactly what we were talking about. Yeah. Hey, let's talk about rain for a second. Okay. So there's a super serious conversation happening, right? Like Tristan's involved and he's laying out like these deep seated insecurities. Uh, Lookout's kind of involved in this conversation. Sveta's deeply involved. Victoria's involved. All of Breakthrough is involved in this conversation. And Rain is here and he's making jokes <laughs> the entire time. He's making jokes. He's like just our, our comedic relief here. <laughs> it's true. And like when Natalie says, like some of you might be willing to throw yourselves away even when necessary. Rain's comment is, I don't know if you're talking about me, but I have an excuse. I was raised by a really stupid doomsday cult. And he holds up a cross that has a stick figure with boobs on it. And it's, uh-huh. it's look, it's hilarious. Like I am not knocking rain here. But I think it's interesting because I think one of the things that Rain does when he's having issues is he hides behind humor. Mm-hmm. I think a little bit. And I, and I do notice like he is literally just comedic relief in here. He's not weighing in really on any of this stuff. And I wonder if he's just having a really hard time processing this stuff. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, because he does. It's been pointed out before that he swears more when he's stressed out mm-hmm. and he does he does say uh, Jesus in hell in this chapter, which is, yeah, that's true, which is totally a, a thing that the fallen would say. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that to me was coded as like, yeah, he's, he's stressed out. Yeah. So yeah, I, I like that. And, uh, and yeah, he, he's, uh, you know, it's not literally the whole team pushing back against her because he is just kind of in the background fiddling with trinkets apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think that's partially because maybe he doesn't feel useful right now and he doesn't feel like he has anything to say because he doesn't feel useful. Sure. We'll see. We'll see. So uh, they talk for a little bit about all the current approaches that are under consideration and all the variables that are in play, like the Seamer. There's kind of a, there's kind of a lot of, you know, this is what's going on in the background of the story, sure. the conversation. Yeah. So. And, and we learn that the Seamerg isn't working with the Titan Fortuna, but yeah. actually attempting to block her. Of course, we have no idea what side either of them are on right now, so we have no idea if that's good news or bad news. Right. I, I'm tempted to say good news. I'm tempted to say... Seamurg is on the side of Dauntless, who we're pretty sure because they're both doing the same thing, right? Like Dauntless is physically preventing people from getting to Fortuna, and the Seamurg seems to be uh, th- c- t- cape 
KP preventing connections her way. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, we we like to believe that Dauntless is is a good guy, but but Seamurg's been singing to him forever, so like that could be bad. Like, I, I mean, I think like the point is Wild Bill's injected enough uncertainty that we can't just be like, all right, this is what's happening. Yeah, um, and and we get we get this wonderful line: "Could be a misdirect." Sveta nodded. Could absolutely, but once you start thinking like that about a precog, there's no coming back up for air. It sucks you down, mm-hmm. and I. Uh, considering that has literally happened to the two of us, I'm going to uh-huh. go ahead and agree with Sveta on this one here. Right. It, yeah, reminds me of Bruce Willis's uh, I don't want to talk about time travel. Um, oh, Ryan Johnson. Yeah. You genius. I know. So <laughs> so Victoria mentions her idea to send one squad into the dream room, uh, the dream, yeah, one squad into the dream and another into the cracks uh, to attack Alice's looking glass from both sides. Hey, Matt, I think this is a through the looking glass reference. It's not a Alice in Chains, right? No, you're right. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> well done. So we, we've I wanted to talk about this reference a little bit with you because this is something I was thinking about it. We've talked about these references again and again throughout the book. The book has basically been playing with Lewis Carroll references from the very beginning. Right. Um, and it turns out they were mostly just a fun way to maybe hint at the shard world being a place we'll be stepping into. But I, I just wanted to talk about how wild bow uses like these intertextual uh, images because Uh they're not predictive, right? Uh Like I don't think you could sit down and read through the looking glass and then say, well now I know how Ward's going to end. That's not really how they work. They're mostly just fun ways of exploring imagery and ideas to maybe, maybe hint at a future event subtly, but not directly, but it's not like, it is not like, Wild Boke has constructed the story and laid it on the bones of another story. And I feel I kind of feel the same with the the 12 labors of Antares theory, right? Which is something mm-hmm. I quite like, but I don't think it's 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 meant as a predictive modeling. I think it's just fun to to borrow from uh from other books and other imagery to kind of explore these ideas. Sure. I mean, I mean, I think that I think her referring to this as a as as a looking glass is is a great example because you're like you have to kind of squint to see that as a looking glass sure. <laughs> but you also get what she means at the same yeah. time so so that that's the sense in which you couldn't have been like oh yeah they're gonna attack the mirror from both sides which is yeah. also not a thing that happens in alice in wonderland i'm pretty sure or or through the looking glass or whatever i mean i mean it's, they play like a big game of chess so that's basically Okay, yeah. That's basically it, right? And then does the strike team attack the other side of the mirror while they're playing chess? I, it's been a while since I've read yeah, it. Yeah, I'm gonna have to brush up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I, 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 I think that's worth pointing out. Like, there's not a. I think what we're saying is there's not a code that underlies the book where you crack the code and you ah, I, I get it. No, it's it's, Correct. it's not like that. Yeah, I think I think when when you. And and I fall in prey to this as well. When you connect these references, like the first time, I think the first time we were like, oh, this is like through the looking glass. Exactly. Mm-hmm. You you open up that book and you're like, want to start drawing lines, right? Like, oh, it's going to be like this. And here, this is going to predict this. And you want to use it as a predictive model. And I just don't think that's the way Wild Bo uses his intertextual imagery at all. It's just, it's it's more like a fun addition uh, to to beef up the imagery of the story. Um, then I'm going to build my story based on this other story. Right. I, I think 
I think you're right. And I could say some comments about some other Wild Bow stories that I won't. Well, shit. So, um, I feel left out. Well, I'm sorry. You won't be forever, <laughs> I'm sure. So Vista shows up, reminds everyone that humans were crucial to beating Jack. Um, yeah, this is subtle, kind of. It, yeah, it's interesting because this isn't actually the moment. This isn't actually the moment where Victoria is like, oh, we should use humans. It's just it's kind of priming her in that direction, though. Yeah, but I, I like the way it's done, though, right? Like a lot of times, a lot of times in these books, like you have to find a way to introduce an idea and there's subtle ways you can do it and there's not subtle ways you can do it. And I don't know. I just like sometimes you just need to have a character say something to your character that gets her down a line of thinking that leads to a revelation. And that's what this is, right? Vista comes in and just allows is like the last piece of the puzzle in Victoria's mind, right? Like we've been talking about Jester and and patrol block and how humans have been handling this. We've been talking about Natalie and her perspective. And then Vista comes in and puts that last piece in like, remember, remember how important and key that one human was in the fight against, uh, in the fight against Jack slash, um, and it's the last little piece that allows that cog to slip in Victoria's head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also, you know, can't help but notice that this is, I think, the second time in the chapter that Natalie has been like, I, I'm useless. All, all of my expertise, she says, I can't do much. Most of my ex- expertise is legal. And she's just constantly kind of downplaying and kind of trying to restrict her yeah. her value um, to these people. I, I think she has major imposter syndrome considering everyone in the room with her is a superhero yeah i think so too um, but but she has to kind of come to grips with the idea that she can contribute to this yeah i totally agree um and it, i mean it doesn't help when <laughs> your main point of contact is also like ignoring you constantly and yeah and yeah true dissing your wardrobe <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so sveta and natalie browbeat victoria into getting some rest um, which she does for like a few minutes, I guess. Uh, after her short nap, her force field feels feels wobbly to her. Uh, the whole team is also taking their rest. Kenzie's having one of her holographic dads read a book to her. Oh my god! It's very sad. Oh my god! Devastated. Yeah. yeah. Devastated. Ugh. Um. Let's talk about Victoria. Let's and okay. sleep. Yeah. Yeah. I guess she I guess she can't sleep anymore because yeah. she might lose control. The idea the idea that the book is presenting to us is that sleeping, resting uh makes her control over uh, her force field shaky. Uh-huh. And and the conclusion that Victoria immediately comes to is, well, can't do that anymore. <laughs> and like this is so interesting to me because it ties perfectly into one of the things we've been talking about with Victoria for a while now is this, this need for control. Right. And this, it's something that Carol had. It's something that I think Carol passed on to her daughter. And and it it was emphasized by what Amy did to her and, and what Amy took from her. Um, and this, this need to have control over everything. And, and after this long, hard battle, uh, she finally has gotten the semblance of control over her force field, the symbol of a a, a time when she didn't have control, a symbol of all those things that were done to her. She has grasped control over it. Now it is hers. It bows to her. And this idea that she could lose that is the scariest thing in the world to her. And so she is going to do whatever it takes Mm -hmm. to make sure that doesn't happen, including 
the least amount of self-care ever. Yeah. Ever. Right. Yeah, I guess this newfound control doesn't like you when I take care of myself. So yes. that's an easy choice for yes. for me, the self-destructive protagonist. Mm-hmm. Oh, Victoria. Um, so, so as the chapter winds down, Victoria finally kind of, like you said earlier, she kind of clicks, suggests that they're going to use an army of non-parahumans as part of their attack. And um, yeah, Sveta doesn't like that idea at first, but Victoria's like, yeah, I'm going to give them the option. They can say no. Mm-hmm. So, so, okay, just what's the, what's the plan? <laughs> so like the, the idea is that if you have the Corona Palentia, how do you say that again? Okay. Got it. I, Corona Palentia. There we go. That, if you have that, it's just a word that's not used very often. So I, I don't remember it. Yeah. Uh, you can probably get into shard world is the, is the hypothesis here. Uh-huh. And therefore, because humans have a different perspective on this thing. And because in shard world capes are weaker, but humans are just humans. Mm-hmm. Um, there could be an advantage there, but like, what are they going to do? Like, are they just going to bring guns in and just shoot the crystals? Just going to mob them. They're going to just, t- just fucking tackle them and just grab onto them. <laughs> I mean, I, like, well, on the one hand, I love the implication of this. Like, like I love the idea of like this realization that oh the key to this is going to be people the key to this is going to be we need the help of these people um but like what's the plan man <laughs> yeah i mean um i have no idea i mean that was, uh, so so i haven't really thought through it at all honestly because i'm like all right so do they mean they're going to send they're going to send people into the dream yes is that is that the assumption i thought like both I don't okay, know. but how are they gonna get people into the cracks? Like just, a just fucking para, paratroop, paratroops. Yeah, okay, sure, parachutes, fine. Yeah, I don't know. See, this is about the level at which I've thought it through. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I mean, more people is better. Sure. Uh, it it. Uh, yeah, no, my, my mind my mind runs aground at this point, and I can only say, I guess we'll see what happens. Yeah, I mean the. the from an actual like narrative perspective, the thing that I, I, I worry about here is the people that say no, right? We just had, we just had this idea introduced that like you wouldn't, you would be fine with people not wanting to participate. And then Sveta going, eh, would you, would you might judge them. And if like you go to humanity and go, who will volunteer and you get like 10 people, or you can be like, ah, fuck humans, yeah, <laughs> right? Uh, and I think I, I I suspect that there's going to be a way more people that volunteer for this than Victoria is thinking, because I suspect she's going to go to the patrol block and everyone that uh, is able to in there is going to be like, yep, absolutely, hundred yeah. percent, right? Um, and and I believe, like, I I think I think this is real an opportunity actually to show Capes how much the people of this world want to help to protect it as well. Yeah, um, sure. That that the problem is they are people that feel powerless and overwhelmed and like they can't do anything. Like like the Natalies, right? Like Natalie is a perfect depiction of that. This person mm-hmm. who consistently throughout the story this chapter has been the person of uh, I can't really help out much here. I can't really do anything here. Uh sorry, I I all I know is legal stuff. And you go to these people and say, "Look, we have a way. We have a way where you can do something, where you can help us, where you can help save the world." And I think 
we're going to be pleasantly surprised at how many people see that and say, yeah, I want to do that. Yeah, I feel like um, the the whole conceit of the the dream world stripping away the powers was a setup for this because in the dream world, the the humans and the capes are on exactly equal footing, right? Yeah, they're, they're exactly equally useful. Natalie is exactly as useful as Victoria in the dream world. So sure, yeah, like that's that's a perfect uh, a perfect setup for this kind of thing. With I mean, except presumably with the assumption that Victoria can just like crystal herself into a new body um i I don't know if that would work for the humans but but i don't even remember like like what did that do for her other than keep her from dying of um falling a huge distance that i think that's it um it didn't give her any special powers it just allowed her to not be dead which is i mean useful sure uh, yeah, it allowed them all to to heal their injuries. I mean, I guess you could. I mean, there's a possibility, right? That like the um, um, the shard world has cached copies of of these other people, even if they aren't capes. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting, right? Yeah, but then again, maybe not. And then all they've lost is the ability to heal themselves. So yeah, yeah sure. I, I mean, still, I think I think putting them all putting everyone on the same playing field feel, feels like a that's the thing the story is trying to do. So I think they should get some bats. And some pitchforks, and go march up to the shards tower, and and burn it down. <laughs> I, I was gonna say um, this is the ending of a bug's life, where all, all the humans link arms, and 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 you suddenly see fear in the face of the titans. Um, so I went with Frankenstein, and and you went with a bug's yep. life, and <laughs> and that's that's it for this week. <laughs> Um, all right. Seriously, though, last week's discussion question was, tell us about a time Wildbo used an unusual technique to let us know how a character was doing emotionally. Uh, Sarah Penguin says, Tattletale, when she uses her power to be extra vicious, it usually means that she is not doing that well. And yeah, this happens a lot. Or more yeah. than a little bit, anyway. It happens a whole, whole lot, yeah. Uh, Glastig Painway... <laughs> Says, before I even listen, I have my answer to your discussion question. Taylor shooting Aster. Um, Glastig notes that uh, right after Taylor shoots a baby, toddler, um, her immediate next thought is, who to shoot next? Except except actually, uh, Glastig argues that the the way that Taylor uses truncated thoughts, specifically the way Wildbo uses those truncated thoughts on Taylor, is a way to uh, show how she's in severe physical and emotional pain. Um, so like the way she's thinking about it, the way she's truncated, the short sentences are actually showing that while Taylor seems not to be affected by what she just did to Aster at all, internally inside her head, she is, uh, she's going crazy. She's panicking. She's reeling about what she just did. Um, yeah. Which is great because it reminds me of the fact that, Wildbo so cleverly ripped us out of Taylor's perspective immediately after this event, and we had to observe it from an outside source of not seeing what she's going through and kind of seeing the ways in which Taylor compartmentalizes those things from the perspective of a person watching her do it. It's really a really good answer. I mean, they pull out the idea that while she's doing the shooting, she's totally like like locked into the moment and and using these very short sentences, and then after it's done, she literally collapses to her hands and knees and is hyperventilating mm-hmm. and uh yeah it's powerful yeah yeah really uh master wilhelm 
says, oh boy, oh boy, what a fantastic chance to gush about my favorite interlude in Worm 4.x, the Brutus interlude, also known as the goodest boy who ever lived. Well, Bill <laughs> uses this chapter to tell us more about Rachel, what she does and why she does it. But coming from a dog, all we're getting are descriptions of her behaviors and not the emotions behind them. And yet, while using literally zero emotional language, Wildbow manages to convey Rachel's profound sadness at the end of the chapter as she mourns for the dog she couldn't save. Yeah. I, yeah. I really like this. And excuse me if I'm repeating something we already said. It's It's been three years. But how the hell can you even do an interlude that really gets to the heart of what Rachel is feeling at this part of the story? Mm-hmm. Because she is a person that is so closed off for like internally from that, the, those things mm-hmm. like she processes them so differently that to get to to get to the core of of her emotions. How do you do that? And the answer is, well, through a dog, through a dog that is that like like they're just emotional animals, right? They read emotion. They understand uh, through physical actions how other animals are feeling mm-hmm. and it's just a, it's just the perfect idea right it's just the perfect idea to go like okay i want to explore rachel i want to start like laying the seeds for who rachel is going to become and why she is the way she is how do we do that of course it's through a dog of course it is it makes perfect sense it, it's 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 brilliant in its necessity almost yeah um and at that point in the story we we're not we're not positively disposed toward rachel and in that chapter by itself totally swings us around on her, I think, or at least yeah. gives us the potential to be open-minded about it, I guess is maybe more precise. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Um, up next, hope both Hobo Demon and Cow Subaloo both pick uh, a section from Twig, which I cannot read, but I'm assuming, Matt, you read them both and you agreed 100% with everything, right? Yes, absolutely. Great answers. Did you really, did you really read them? I, I did, yeah. Okay. And I agreed. Good. Okay, good. No, I disagreed. No, I agreed. Uh, oh, man, what a take. Yeah. Extas Niveau says, I'll go with the classic offloading of emotions into bugs of Taylor. For some time, Taylor isn't aware of, of, uh, renting, of, sorry, of, I, I'm, I'm having Renting trouble. out her inner turmoil. Ren- renting out her inner turmoil into her shard. Oh, I, I see. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's an unusual way of using that word, but. Totally permissible. And the shard broadcasting that into her bugs. So for Taylor and the reader, she is unusually calm and only some people notice her emotional venting. Up to the point she herself recognizes the fact. And so we and a handful of characters notice this. Um, Yeah, I mean, that's... I I do wonder if anybody noticed it before Imp points it out to us. I'm pretty sure I didn't. Um, I think... Actually, no, there is the time when, like, her bugs are freaking out outside the conversation with... um, Dinah and yeah 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 I, I mean that. isn't it is it bef- it's before imp that it's explicitly confirmed through Alexandria's failure right um but I don't know if I don't know if that's other characters catching on to it or not I don't know if I don't know if the text was that explicit about like the degree to which she does that with Alexandria um, well I, th- I thought that was why Alexandria's lie detector failed. I think that that's true, but I don't think that I got that the first time I read it. Which is that? Is that not textual? Is that more subtextual? It, if if I didn't get it, it's not textual. <laughs> that's that's how that works. 
if I didn't get it, those, it's subtextual. This is one of those statements that I hope people realize that you're being sarcastic and not actually saying it and not actually be like, that fucking arrogant asshole. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I know what you mean. Yeah, okay. I honestly don't remember. It's just a long, long time ago. Yeah. I'm sure our listeners will will correct us on that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, lastly, we have Beard of Valor who says all of Rachel's behavior from when she pushed Taylor into containment foam on the raid in the ward wards HQ. And when she was replaced by a body double and the swarm box and she finally returned. So that whole thing Beard of Valor wants to talk about. Uh, and it's a little bit of a lengthy post. I'll read some of it before they even went home. Taylor put the baton in her mouth and dog submitted her by rolling her belly up. After that, Rachel was snarling and furious. We get some explicit notes in her interlude when she's just screaming her rage and trying to banish regret, though she never names it. The interlude is when Siberian gifts her bastard, who we then thought of as a wolf, but he's evidently a bastard half-breed. Ultimately, she starts to settle down, maybe put it behind her. Then, in a second beat of Don't Underestimate Me, after long round two, when Kaiser let him go full wingling <laughs> she backs taylor against coil this after a third beat of rachel making a judgment call on whether taylor should be one of the group she immediately believes real taylor when she's making up a story that sounds way more contrived than the ones rachel had tended to interrupt excuses words nope trust in her friend her first and only friend um and beard of valor goes on from there but yeah i mean i think i think rachel rachel is just a good answer to this question in general because she's such so different in the way she processes emotion um and her relationship with taylor is a way to perfectly perfectly explore that mm -hmm. and build that out yeah um that, that's that's all great I'm, I'm also reminded of the idea that like rachel would would realize based on body language that the other person wasn't really taylor probably in, mm -hmm. like once it was pointed out so yep yep um, yeah, that that that's all so good. It's so good. All the Rachel stuff. Rachel's the best. Um, all right. Next week's discussion question is, what is Ward about? <laughs> so what, the reason, what's it about? Yeah, the reason for asking that here, story's not over, but I think it's actually fun to ask the question before the story's over because that gives you the chance to think about it, give your answer, and then as the climax occurs as, as the story wraps up then you can look back on your answer and say you were right you were wrong you were wrong but in an interesting way you were almost right um so yeah let's ward about i love it i love it i can't wait to see what you guys say and please like i mean obviously we can't make you not just give one word answers but <laughs> explore your answer like like what's it about and why do you think it's about that yeah, and of course it's about many things. Yes, um, there there is no there's no correct answer to this. If, if you want us to do a good job summarizing your post, maybe pick one thing to talk about. <laughs> just yeah. a, just a suggestion. Just a suggestion. Yeah. All right, that's all we've got for you this week on We've Got Ward. You are all part of this show, so feel free to provide us with advice, questions, or thoughts on this week's reading. What you meant to say is that's all we got for you this year on We've Got Ward. This decade. This decade on We've Got Ward. Uh, you can reach us via email at gotwormpod at gmail.com or on Twitter at gotwormpod, my personal Twitter, where you can see all the spicy Star Wars takes is at scottdaily85. And Matt's is where you can see all the spicy cat takes at Mordinamail. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward, we strongly recommend you do so and never miss an episode. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, Google Play, and pretty much anywhere else in the world you can listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find all the shows we do along with this one at our website, doofmedia.com. That's where you can find the Doofcast, where last week we did an episode on 
season one of The Legend of Korra. This week we are doing an episode on uh, the decade. We're going to talk about the best movies of the decade or what we think they are. It's going to be fun. Mm-hmm. I I have to come up with my answer to that question. We're recording that episode in two days and I don't I don't have it yet. Yeah, I haven't uh, I haven't got mine either. Um, but we cool. appreciate all of you who have sent in yours. Yes, yes. Um, and that is a good reminder that uh, send us in audio copies of what's the number again? Do you have the phone number handy? Not. Uh, yes. <laughs> do we do we have we announced this on We've Got Ward before? I don't think we have. I don't think we have. This is this is a mess. Uh, this is this is how our outros work these days. It's just we stopped. We didn't want to script our outros as much. And this is what happens when we don't script our outros. Yeah. OK, so um, the Google voice number, which I think you can only call from within the United States is. That is correct. Seven two zero three eight six two three seven four. Seven three. Say it again. Two. Oh, Jesus Christ. Seven two zero three eight six two three seven four. Yes. And, um, and I think your... somebody did us the favor of discovering that you can only leave messages of like three, three minutes. minutes in length or yeah. so. So in that message, leave your name and just talk about what your favorite movie of the last 10 years is. And our plan is at the end of that episode, we're just going to we're going to be talking within the doof crew about all our favorite movies of the decade. And then we're going to close the episode just playing what all you guys thought. So call that number, leave a message and we will play it at the end of our episode. What was your favorite movie and why is it not Mad Max Fury Road? <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. Uh, yeah. If you're not already subscribed to We've Got Ward. We, we did that. We did that. We one did already. that already. Awesome. Awesome. That's that's great. So <laughs> uh, if you like any of our shows and you want to support them, consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash doofmedia. You can donate whatever you feel like, really. Um, supporting us on Patreon gives you tons of great bonuses like voting in all of the many contests that we now do, including yeah, the Do the Right Thing contest. We love contests, and we love doing them, so we're going to keep doing more and more. It's true. Uh, hangout sessions with with the Doof crew. There's one of those every month. It's pretty fun. It's always something different and cool, especially since uh, the Australians joined and started like making them just fucking incredible. Yeah, they know how to do things. They do, yeah. It's wild. They it know how to do things. It's really good. Um, and of course the Discord, which is, you know, which is great. Mm-hmm. Uh, as always, head over to Wildbo's Patreon at patreon.com slash Wildbo and donate to him as well. It's the Christmas season, folks. If you're already donating, maybe bump it up a little bit, you know. Yeah. This, this is his world. We're just playing in it. Let's, let's you know, pay the rent. <laughs> yeah. Um, this week. All those Christmas presents got to be paid that's right. New Bidoofs on, on the new Bidoof. That's a, that's a reward level. Maybe people don't know that. <laughs> it's, the, it's the $1 level. It's the $1 level. What um, is this outro? But Idandor, Claire O, Haunt of the Heron, and Andy D. Thank you. We appreciate y'all so much. Yeah, thank you guys so much. We know this is a very expensive month for y'all. It's, it's, it's Christmas time. It's the holiday season. People are buying a lot of things. So we really do appreciate those of you that are uh, using some of your money to support us. We, it means the world to us. It really does, um, especially as we come here at the, at the end of the year. It's been 2019 has been a crazy year for us. We've grown so much. We brought all these new shows to our network. It's been crazy. It's been wild. And you guys have been with us uh, on the whole journey. And we really, really appreciate that. Yeah. Um 
And that yes. includes those of you that can't donate financially. You're still along with us on the ride because you still help us just by downloading and listening, just by sharing, just by annoying your friends about this book and this podcast and everything. Uh, so so keep doing that in 2020. Make your New Year's resolution to bug 20. 20 people 2020 people <laughs> about about ward and worm and our podcast uh, that's all we have for you this decade remind her that we'll be off next week celebrating the christmas holiday but we'll return in the year 2020 to execute operation human shield i can't wait to see how it goes happy new year and merry christmas and happy holidays everybody matt do the um and and to all a good night but do it in your Santa voice. And to all a good night. <laughs> Holy shit, that's a really good Santa voice. Oh.